Hi, welcome back to our E! News Music Special. I'm David Adelson in London. It's hard to believe it's been nearly 40 years since four young lads from Liverpool crossed the Atlantic and changed music history forever. Now with the release of his new album, Paul McCartney is returning to some of his old Beatle ways. I recently had the opportunity to sit down and talk to Sir Paul. I think that's really one of the great advantages of being a musician, that um, no matter what kind of music you make, it just might help someone through a moment. Don't want to let you take me down McCartney is happy these days. After a period of immense pain and mourning following the death of his wife Linda, McCartney is relaxed, open, and writing about his life on the new album, Driving Rain. The song called Magic was one that um, I'd written. Remembering Linda after she passed away, uh, rather than in a negative way, I was just remembering all the good stuff. Must And I'd always joke with my kids that if on the night that we met, which was in a club in London, if I hadn't got up and said, hi, my name's Paul, what's yours? Which I, like, I don't do. You don't do that kind of stuff. And I certainly hadn't done that kind of stuff. But she just seemed so great that I stood up and said, hi, what's your name? And would you like to come to another club? So I said to I used to joke with the kids, I say, if I hadn't have done that, had the nerve to do that, you lot wouldn't be here, you know? He's also in love again and engaged to Heather Mills, who he writes about on the album. But he says we're engaged, that's it. That's it. Well, well, it's all very private stuff, all that, you know. Anyway, we're standing here for the cameras and we're very happy and we'll get married sometime next year. It feels like you're in love and happy on this record. Yeah, well, I am. Um, so that kind of shows anyway. And the Heather song was a jam I was doing, and Heather, who doesn't know the whole Beatles history, she brought up in a lot of classical music, she, she thought it was a Beatles hit, she said, which one was that? I said, oh, I'm just making it up, I'm just jamming. And then a couple of days later, she said, well, what are you gonna call that? I said, Heather. Remarkably, McCartney recorded Driving Rain in just a couple of weeks with three musicians he didn't know. Is it true that you did not meet the musicians until you actually gathered in the studio? Yeah, that's true. But in actual fact, it was really a good thing because none of us knew anything about each other. So it was all not to do with that. It was to do with just the music. Just like four guys meeting up to do some music, and that was the only concern. No doubt about it, life seems to have come full circle since the days of John, Ringo, and the late George Harrison. I know you never even tried, I did an interview recently where I was talking about me and John showing up at the Beatles and saying to George and Ringo and George Martin, the producer, saying, this is how it goes. And I realized that even they didn't know what the song was. You know, we just say, this one goes like this, eight days a week or something. And we just go, okay, let's make the record. Despite all that goes along with being Paul McCartney, the world's best known musician has always kept it simple. Hey Jude, don't be afraid. I remember with John on Hey Jude, I'm, I'm playing him Hey Jude for the first time. And I said, uh, the movement you need is on your shoulder. I leaned over and said, I'll change that, don't worry, I'll change it. He said, you won't, you know. That's like the best line in it. And so stuff you think is a bit corny or a bit too simple or a bit weird, sometimes you get an, another take on it and someone will say, no, 
I really like that line. I like it because it's simple. And so Paul McCartney continues his journey. He's rejuvenated and in love. Oh, and don't let that famous British knighthood fool you. This universal music legend is still pretty down to earth. What am I to do if I don't have you? I'll be feeling blue just sitting here without you. You could be the one to chase my blues away. I mean, my main worry was that it would change the way people thought of me. But luckily, Americans kind of like that, but they don't. They're not going to, you know. Somebody said, do we have to call you sir now? I said, no. And uh, the English people are the same. You know, the guys who work for me on uh, where I live, say, what are we going to call you now? I said, Paul, it's okay. Nothing's changed, you know. I was a bit worried that even I would think, hey, come on, I'm a sir now. You know, I'm going to get the big house and the big thing. I'm going to live it up. But I'm glad to see that none of that happened. So I just look upon it as a great honor and something for, for a kid from the sticks, it's not bad. Coming up, it's a remarkable night of tears, bonding. This is a World Trade Center. Oh honor. man, this is a special. It happened, to be, it happened hey. to be our card before. And laughter. They're the only guys that I would bear my ass cheeks again for. For amber waves of grain. Paul McCartney did not participate in that event. He had other plans. Like everyone else, I thought, I want to do something, you know, but I'm not a fireman, I'm not a rescue worker, so there's no point in me really going down there. I've got to think of something else. What he did was join VH1 and Miramax to help organize a stunning tribute and benefit concert for New York's firefighters and police. Seeing the firemen, you know, after they, you knew they were going back in that building when everyone, the rest of us would have had to run, um, just became uh, embroiled in the whole thing. And so they gathered at Madison Square Garden for the concert for New York City, a five-hour-plus live extravaganza. But throughout all the music and the entertainment, no one ever lost sight of the cause. It was unlike any concert I've ever seen. With over 5,000 police, fire, and emergency medical workers dominating the sold-out house, it was a move to pull up the place to get all of your pull all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. Yes, indeed, everyone. We are back with our exploration into Paul's 2001 solo record, Driving Rain. Last time we covered all of the non-music-based events of the inter-album period. Rather uniquely, though, it was a maudlin episode, thanks to its subject matters, meaning we talked a lot about loss, as well as some of the darkest moments from both 
hours and Paul's life. But this week, that's all going to change. It's all going to be about the future and creation and, you know, love and happiness. It's going to be a complete 180. I do promise you this is going to be a little bit lighter, a little bit brighter. You're not going to you know, worry about me doing a fourth depressive topic out of nowhere. And, you know, since it's going to be about creation, we are going to be talking about all of the musical projects undertaken by Paul from 1998 to 2001. We're going to be talking about the music of Driving Rain itself with uh, a look into the producer, the band, as well as all of the recording sessions, finishing off with uh, the album cover, talking about the release, the promotion and the sales figures, as well as the critical reception for the album. Yes, oh my gosh, there is so much to cover here, folks. This is not my first time recording it. I want to crack on with it just as much as you do. But before all that, we do have to crack on with the housekeeping. And oh my God, there's so much of that as well. Because yes, this episode has been a long time coming. A long time coming in. But yeah, uh, let's crack on with the housekeeping. Starting off, what do we have in terms of the news for today? Well, starting off, we actually, uh, well, we're going to wind the clock back quite a while, actually. Uh, A lot has happened between parts one and two. We had the death of John Eastman, John L. Eastman. Uh, He was uh, a lawyer for a bunch of famous musicians, including Paul. He was one of Paul's lawyers. But if that surname is uh, familiar to you, Yes, that is because uh, his sister indeed was Linda McCartney. Yeah, uh, Linda's brother, Paul's brother-in-law, passed away. Uh, he died of uh, pancreatic cancer. And yeah, it, that was on the 10th of August, I believe, in New York. Uh, of course, he was a major, a major player in the music world. He handled... The last days of the Beatles band, well, as a band, you know, a, re- a real major figure in Paul's life. And Paul did indeed reach out and say a few words. He said, My dear brother in law, John Eastman has passed away. Having known each other for over 50 years, it is an extremely sad time for me and our families. John was a great man, one of the nicest and smartest people I've had the good luck to have known in my life. Not only did he help me massively in my business dealings as my lawyer, but as a friend, he was hard to beat. His sense of humour always shone through in everything he did, and his devotion to his family was supreme. We had so many fun times together through the years, but when the times came to be serious, he was unbeatable. There is so much more that can be said of his incredible qualities, but words can hardly describe his passion for life and our affection for this loving man. He will be sorely missed, but always held dear in the hearts of those of us who knew and loved him. See you, Johnny. Love, Paul. So yeah, that was a sad one to start things off. Obviously, I've known about him as part of the Eastman Empire, but I've I've never known his specific story or dealings or anything like that. But I did know that he had a lot of other big-name talent clients over the years, including Andrew Lloyd Webber, David Bowie, Elton John as well as the estates of Tennessee Williams and the painter Francis Bacon. Yeah, but, you know, Paul will always be the most important one there. Sad to see the passing of Mr Eastman. Rest in peace. Next up, 
we had the unveiling of a Brian Epstein statue in Liverpool, which looks absolutely fantastic, actually. It seems like there was some online effort, uh, like a fundraising effort, whereby people who donated to it uh, would have their initials on the statue as well. It's, it's a very lifelike statue. It looks absolutely great. And there are all these little uh, initials on it, and those are all the people that helped get this uh, statue made. The sculpture is located near the former site of his uh, family's NEMS record shop in Whitechapel, and it was unveiled on the 55th anniversary of his death, aka the 27th of August 1967. Yeah, it's great to see now that, you know, as well as the Beatles themselves being immortalised in big bronze statues that are impossible to not take a, statue, uh, a, photo, a photograph with, people around the Beatles story, Brian obviously specifically getting a shout out that's really cool maybe we'll have you know a mal evans one somewhere maybe stood next to the noddy holder statue in a liverpool lime street station who knows but yeah go and check out that brian epstein statue if you haven't already we then had the release of mccartney one two three no i'm not talking about mccartney three two one the uh, Hulu TV series with Rick Rubin. No, I'm talking about McCartney 123, which was a box set of McCartney 1, McCartney 2, and shock horror, McCartney 3. Uh, all put together in a nice little box set. Um, you could get CDs, uh, regular vinyl, or coloured vinyl. And, yeah, I really wasn't too impressed with this one. I went into... A lot of detail on a Patreon exclusive episode where I could do this uh, on film and show you what I was talking about. But not only was my copy at least a week late, you know, I, I got to see everyone in the Beatle community talking about their copy and, you know, showing it off and presumably listening to the music, you know, steaming myself full of rage and bitter jealousy. But then the package came and... The cardboard sleeve, the casing, was dented. Uh, there were finger and thumb marks all over the copy of uh, McCartney 1. And then the uh, the sleeves for McCartney 2 and McCartney 3 uh, were torn. So uh, it's definitely left a bad impression on me. Uh, also, it seemed like a very bare box set in comparison to the archive stuff that has come out, it seemed almost like the only reason you would buy this box set is if you had no copies of McCartney 1, 2, 3, and then you could have this lovely little box set and have them all together. But, I mean, the fact that, you know, we, we, we had the McCartney 1 uh, archive... No, no, not, not, not archive, the uh, 33 and a third. No, yeah, the 33 and a third Masters or whatever. You You know what I mean those masters that came out recently you know that came out and that's the definitive McCartney and so you know I, I felt like I really would need something to help, uh, help make this copy of McCartney stand out and uh, the actual vinyl choices you get in this the like the, the coloured one the one that I got were so lacklustre I mean you got white cream and clear that could not be a more beige, forgettable selection if I tried. Like, compare that to, like, some of the McCartney 3 ones. We got, you know, like, pink and 
violet and red and blue and green and coke green you know all of that that was so cool and yet in this we just got three rather bland vinyls uh, all with inferior mixes to what we have got elsewhere uh, and then and then you got these three nice little picture frames which did have some nice writing on the back that most people will never write because I imagine people would frame these uh, but besides that, there's nothing else. There's no little booklet or anything like that. It does feel sparse in that sense. And look, I'm aware that I'm giving this a negative review because I've received a pretty bad copy. But uh, I don't think I would, I would have given it that great a review otherwise. Yeah, do, uh, do email him. Uh, I want to know both your experiences with McCartney 123, if you yourself got a copy. But also... Uh, have you ever had any negative experiences with McCartney product, specifically from the McCartney website? Have you ever had any uh, bad shipping or anything like that? I would love to know your uh, McCartney mail horror stories, even things like eBay and stuff like that. Why not throw them in as well? Uh, next up, we had uh, Grandy's Green Submarine Yoga, <laughs> which um, basically, Green uh, Submarine, the... Uh, second grand dude book was turned into an episode of the online children's yoga series cosmic kids yoga yeah this is a thing it's a youtube series written and presented by uh, jamie amour and basically she she turns lots of children's properties into uh, yoga sessions for them you know it's a good way to get kids into yoga and she does, like, you know, Frozen yoga or Spider-Man yoga, that kind of thing. And so they've done a Nandude one now, or a Grand Dude Green Submarine one. And, you know, the Frozen one, that got, like, 8 million or 11 million views, something like that. The Grand Dude stuff has got a couple of hundred thousand views. It's not quite the same thing, but it's still very cool to see. It's cool to see Paul in a different medium, once again. You know, Paul on a children's YouTube series. That's something that you don't see every day. It, it, it's also keeping the Grand Dude brand alive. You know, it, it leads me to believe that there will definitely be more Grand Dude material in the future. And it's cool to see that, you know, Paul wants kids to get into yoga you know it's a more positive grandfatherly grand doodly way of trying to change the world rather than trying to get everyone into lsd like he did in the 60s he, he, he you know he's now trying to get get the kids into yoga you know that's kind of cool that's very that's very paul i also read it in a couple of sources that paul did the music for this as well but i can't find any other sources to back that up uh, if anyone could uh, let me know if they have any independent rips of the Grand Dude uh, Green Submarine Yoga Session. N not the video, that's available for free on YouTube, but just the music. That'd be very interesting indeed. That would definitely be included on a, a McCartney 3 archive box set, wouldn't it? Then we have the new... Uh, Beatles, not quite 50th anniversary, big box set. You know, it's basically just the next Beatles big album box set. And rather than going forward, because we started off with Sgt. Pepper moving forward to Let It Be, we, earn, we now have to go back from Sgt. Pepper and we have one for Revolver. The pre-order is already up and online. I'm sure most of you have, have already gotten your copies right now. Mine is set to arrive on the 1st of November and it has certainly put me back 
a pretty penny, but thankfully all of you lovely patrons out there have got that covered for me. Let's just have a look at this box set now, actually, because I, I forget I forget what's in it. Here we are, yeah, the Revolver Super Deluxe Edition, Special Edition... Yeah, uh, I'm getting the 4LP 7-inch Super Deluxe version, and it's basically the same as the CD one. You either get five CDs or four LPs and an EP. Uh, so the first one is the 2022 Stereo Mix of Revolver by Giles Martin and Sam Okel or Sam O'Kell. Then it's uh, CD2 or LP2, it's session stuff. So it starts off with T Tomorrow Never Knows Take One and goes through to And Your Bird Can Sing, uh, the giggling version that we had on Anthology. Then we have CD3 or LP3, more sessions, starting off with Andrew Birkinson's second version, right the way through to uh, the backing track rehearsal for She Said, She Said. Then the fourth CD slash LP is the mono transfer of the original tape, which, to be fair, is pretty darn interesting, actually. I've never had any mono stuff. I know that there are probably a lot of collectors out there who are like, oh god, we've already got these monos. I'm sure they're all available online anyway, but... As a collector who is mostly just getting the new product that comes out, it's a cool little addition to have. And then CD5 or the 7-inch bonus EP, like we got on the, the Let It Be box set, we have uh, Paperback Writer and Rain on one side in stereo, and then Paperback Writer and Rain on the other side in mono. Now, this is a pretty big box set, folks. This is up there with... All of these other major Beatles re-releases that we've had over the last few years. Doesn't need to be a whole lot of hype around it, though. I don't hear too many people going crazy for it. I don't see much discourse online or on Twitter or anything. I'm guessing people have just kind of ordered this and that's that. Are people that excited this? Again, email into the show. Let me know if you're getting this, if you want to get it, if you thought it was too expensive, if it's a bit done and dusted. Is there enough material to warrant this release? Is this the last one as well? Do you reckon we can do the same for perhaps Rubber Soul or Help? Who knows? Yeah, I'll definitely be doing an episode on that uh, around the 1st of November. Then we had the appearance of Paul at the uh, Taylor Hawkins tribute show. Uh, of course, Taylor Hawkins was the fantastic iconic drummer for the Foo Fighters. Paul is, of course, very close with the Foos and Dave. Uh, Dave appeared at the uh, Glastonbury show with Paul, and now Paul is returning the favour by appearing at the Taylor Hawkins tribute show. Uh, there was one uh, here in the UK, in London, and one over in the States. New York, I imagine. But for this show, Dave, of course, brings on Paul. The crowd goes wild. And it's actually Paul and Chrissy Hind together. And they did a duet of a song that Paul has never done before. Uh, of course, if you remember back to the Patreon bonus episode, you Patreon uh, supporters out there, I actually discussed quite recently uh, all of the songs Paul has never played live. Oh Darling was one of them. And now <laughs> Paul goes and actually performs it. That's really cool. Uh, of, of course, also, if you go and listen back to the last episode, you'll remember that Paul and Chrissy Hind on stage together uh, is nothing strange, as they were both uh, on stage for the uh, the Linda McCartney uh, tribute gig as well. So, you know, 
they're definitely used to doing this. Weirdly, uh, before the show started, though, the drummer was missing, and there was just like two minutes of Paul just stood there bumming around, twiddling his thumbs. It's very interesting footage. We're not normally privy to that kind of thing, and uh, I did think it was quite funny. Uh, But yeah, then they go into the song, and it's okay. It's definitely uh, one of those shows where Paul really hasn't had the opportunity to do, like, say, a gig the night before, or lots of rehearsals. The voice was quite rough. And the fact that it's a song that they've never performed before means that you can really tell, like, there would be a lot of expectations for a song like this, and Paul doesn't really live up to them it's one of his hardest edged vocals and yet he comes out here with a kind of not slapdash but a kind of slightly thrown together performance that doesn't sell himself that well you know what let's just hear a bit of it now actually Tell you I never do you no harm. 
Fortunately, Paul did bring it all back around in the end with a rousing, badass version of Helter Skelter. Do, 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 do. I'm probably going to end up doing an episode on this one day in the future, but I'll let it pass first. I'll let um, a little more history get put behind it. Uh, I also certainly want to focus on stuff like the concert for George first. Uh, I know me and my friend Dylan Seavey want to cover that very soon indeed. Uh, Then, of course, we found out a couple of days ago that, well, Her Majesty is no longer with us. God bless the Queen. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II passed away very recently. Of course, the whole world is in mourning still at the time of recording. It's as a, a Brit uh, been very affecting. It, it, it didn't really affect me at the time, but you know, as as those, as as the days passed, a certain uh, meaning and significance sort of washed over me slightly. I'm, I've never really been a royalist, but you know, it's always sad to see a lovely public figure go, and she was one of them. May she rest in peace. Long live the king and all that jazz. Of course, Paul being himself, he was not able to not comment. He wrote a song called Her Majesty, of course, so he took to Twitter with a very simple, very brief, very to-the-point posting of God bless Queen Elizabeth II, may she rest in peace, long live the King, Paul McCartney. I couldn't have put it better myself, my friend. Of course, she was a very popular queen. She meant a lot to a lot of people regardless of what you think about the institution and all that. And I know she will be truly missed. Uh, And to end the news on a slightly lighter note, in keeping with the theme of today's episode, a fan of the show, a listener of the show, has sent me in a couple of Paul McCartney covers. Yes, folks. uh, People don't just listen to Paul in this community. They actually go out there and make it for themselves. Um, you know, if you go back and remember the um, McCartney 3 uh, promo stuff, people were doing a bunch of covers for that. That was all very amateur. This is very professionally done. It's by the listener uh, Max Komu? 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 I'm so sorry, Max. I cannot pronounce that surname. I've, I've only ever read it. Uh, he's teamed up with uh, Malik Rashawn, and you can go online right now. I'll, I'll be leaving links in the description, of course, but you can check out their covers of Single Pigeon, My Valentine, Maybe I'm Amazed, and If I Take You Home Tonight. You know what, actually, uh, before we go into the next part, let's have a quick listen to Single Pigeon. Me too, 
me too I'm a lot like you Me too Me too I'm a lot like you time to crack on with uh, the correspondence it's time to talk about the emails yes to get in contact with the show drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com i always want to hear about your paul mccartney stories no matter how tenuous or loosely linked to paul whether you've seen him live or you want to talk about an album you want to talk about the stuff we've been talking about on the show stuff that we have covered previously maybe there's just something about paul you want to get off your own chest whatever it is I want to hear it. And we do have a couple of emails today. And our first one is one uh, from one Paul Soper. He says, Hi Sam, hope you're well. I've just finished part one of the Driving Rain episode and it inspired me to write, just to offer my personal perspective, as it's an album that's very important to me. I got into the Beatles themselves via Anthology when I was 15 and into the late 90s started to explore the solo material on CD. Though, interestingly, I started to explore the solo material of all four Beatles quite some time before I listened to the Beatles' pre-help material. Flaming Pie was the first album of new McCartney stuff that I experienced and I bought it on release in May of 1997. At that point, I hadn't heard most of the McCartney back catalogue. I think at that point, I'd only heard McCartney and Ram. I still have the May 1997 issue of Mojo magazine, whose review of the album drew comparisons to the White Album and Ram. In the era before streaming and with the internet in its infancy, the only way I was able to gain insight into what albums I should explore next was via books and magazines. Because of that, I steered clear of some less highly regarded albums for a while, such as Wildlife and Back to the Egg, 
Yet, when I was given both on CD as a birthday present in October 97, I found they became and stayed two of my favourite Wings slash McCartney albums, period. It was an interesting, exciting time, searching out all of the McCartney back catalogue. If you were in a smaller store, they would likely have the All the Best comp and the 1993 McCartney uh, collection of CDs, uh, such as like Band on the Run. If you're lucky, they would have some other titles, though. At that point, I was living in Dorset, but my sister lived in Bath, and the great thing about was that the HMV Bath was a larger store. I bought my 1993 remaster of Press to Play there on the 18th of December 1998, and that album always reminds me of Christmas 98 because of that. It took me another year to find Tug of War. No store ever seemed to have that one. And so, Driving Rain. My anticipation for Driving Rain began in December of 99 because, as part of his appearance on Parkinson, which was a 60-minute McCartney special, principally to promote Run Devil Run, he debuted Your Loving Flame with David Gilmour on guitar. It was a song that grabbed me immediately and I clearly remember thinking, I hope that this is on his next album. Little did I know, of course, that the album would not be released for another two years. I remember the two main previews I had uh, of material from Driving Rain, and they were the concert for New York, which we spoke about on the show, and when Radio 2 featured the album as Album of the Week in the week prior to the release of the album. I remember getting up very early on the day of the album's release in November 2001 to go to HMV and MVC, which is Music and Video Club. Anyone else who remembers MVC stores? Question mark. And I bought the CD there. By that point, I owned most of the Wings and McCartney solo albums, and I loved Driving Rain from the first play. I mean, really loved it, and rated it close to the top. I liked Flaming Pie, and still do, but it didn't grab me like Driving Rain did, and I still go back to Driving Rain more than Flaming Pie, or for that matter, Band on the Run. There are no tracks I skip, except maybe Freedom, but I tend to think of that as a bonus track since it was added at the last minute. I've never understood why the fanbase generally don't seem to care for it though. I would dearly love an archive collection for Driving Rain, but I fear no album beyond Flaming Pie will receive that treatment. The high regard McCartney holds that album was clear given the number of tracks included on Pure McCartney, whilst Driving Rain was bypassed. I'm sure the Heather Mills factor has an influence there. As much as I love the archive collections, it has to be the longest reissue campaign in history. I understand it takes a time to compile these sets, but I can't believe we're now 12 years on from Band on the Run, and there are still albums out of print on physical media. It probably didn't help that McCartney switched from Concord to Capital in 2017, because each label will have their own agendas. I think they should release a complete albums box containing everything from McCartney onwards just to get everything out there remastered. Finally, it's interesting that McCartney 123 has been released in Atmos, considering that McCartney has avoided any surround content on the archive collections, save for the Bruce McMouse show. I don't have an Atmos setup, but I do have a 5.1 setup. The 5.1 mixes of the tracks on the McCartney Years DVD are bloody amazing, and I'd kill to hear the album in surround. Anyway, sorry for the long email. I'm looking forward to part two. Cheers, Paul Soper. There 
there we are. Thank you so much for that one, Paul. That was a fucking amazing email. That is the kind of thing that really gets me going. That's the kind of thing I love to wake up and read in the morning. It was it was detailed. It was thorough. That you made so many amazing points. First of all, I just love all the specific dates you give. I love the the context you give and the like detail that you provided there. That that's the stuff, kind of kind of stuff I really do enjoy in a story. Also, um, just as as an aside, I didn't know that the Parkinson appearance was a one hour McCartney special. I thought he just appeared on. A regular episode and I didn't know that that's where your loving flame comes from I mean the fact that it was performed two years early that's insane that's insane I'm gonna have to mention that later on this episode uh, when I talk about your loving flame because I know I don't mention that fact on uh, either parts three or four but yeah thank you so much for like a, a journey through your uh, discovery of Paul and how and you know how you've been collecting him through the years, and I'm especially pleased to see someone enjoy Driving Rain so much. I'm not saying I'm putting it towards the top or anything, but it's certainly one of the greatest miss reviews <laughs> or miss appreciations from the fandom. This is certainly a a very strong, very tight album. It's very different, though, of course, so that's probably why a lot of people are turned off from it. Um, a lot of people like Paul probably don't like the Heather Mills period as well, and that affects them. But it's great to see someone also respond so positively to the material. And it is a shame that there was nothing from Driving Rain on Pure McCartney. This is an album that is an official part of the canon and should be represented as such. Thank you again, Paul. Thank you so much for that email. If you have anything you want to rant or rave about in a similar way in the future, do not hesitate. Following on, and we have our second and final email today from one Bill Moyer, which he sent right after uh, part one of Driving Rain, which I think he's responding to specifically here. He says, Hey, Sam, I really enjoyed this podcast, and I love the two to three hour episodes. Well, buckle in, Bill. Just to let you know, if you didn't already, many Americans felt that it really sucked, abysmally so, having George W. Bush as president. He didn't even win the popular vote in 2000, like Trump did in 2016. Our system for electing presidents is seriously messed up. Some people in the US are just too gullible based on the media they watch or read. For example, many people joined the Army, Navy, Air Force, etc., after 9-11, because they believed that Iraq was responsible for it and had weapons of mass destruction. Yet, the anti-war protesters were ridiculed. How fucked up is that? Too bad Tony Blair got pulled into that mess, but electing Obama in 28 was certainly a breath of fresh air. Regarding the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, John and Paul should have been inducted at the same time because Paul definitely had a large body of work, a larger one than John's, by the time he was killed, and even more so by 1994. But we all know that Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone favoured John and minimised Paul's work post-Beatles. There are many injustices that Paul has endured, and this is just one of them. Like, when, if ever, will Wings be inducted? There are other important bands, like Jethro Tull, for instance, from the 1960s and 70s, that are yet to be included, 
while lesser pop groups have been. Wenner has too much influence over who gets selected, but at this point, I no longer care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as it's become a joke. Keep on producing great shows, Bill. Ah, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for that lovely email there. It's always nice to have a uh, anti-Republican, anti-war, fist-pumping-in-the-air kind of uh, expression here on this podcast. It's certainly not a topic we rarely ever get to cover. I myself am going to stay out of it. I don't, uh, you know, despite the fact that American politics is discussed way more in this country and is uh, way more interesting than my own country's politics, it's something that I'm going to stay away from as far as I can. But uh, I will say, Tony Blair didn't get pulled into the mess. He willingly uh, signed a deal with the devil uh, in going into Iraq. There was no being pulled into it. Let's just make that clear. I need to find out who this Jan or Jan Wenner is as well. Uh, We'll just do a quick search online now. Uh, Man looks... Oh, okay, sorry. He's the guy who co-founded Rolling Stone. Why does he have such a say? I'd love to know. Why is he and the magazine so influential on supposedly an independent award show? Uh, maybe it's all just a front for Rolling Stone itself. Um, yeah, folks, any more uh, insights onto the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well? I'd love to hear that as well. But um, you know what, Bill, just one thing before I go. You are right. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a joke. But on the other hand, I too would also like Wings to be inducted as well. It doesn't make sense, but it is what it is. Thank you again. Bill, if you too would like your email or your correspondence or just your thoughts on Paul McCartney, read out on the show, folks, again, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, which is at McCartneypod for daily updates. Check out the blog for bonus Paul or nothing written content at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by tapping Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the only place where you can find new episodes of Macca in your attic. Again, haven't released one for a couple of weeks now, but I will definitely be changing that shortly in the near future. Again, if you know anyone with a great Paul McCartney collection, uh, if you have one yourself and you want to come on the show... Hit me up. I don't care if you're in the media intelligentsia or not. Just a cool Beals collection. That's all I'm after. Anyway, if you want to help out the show right away, right now, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a five-star review for the show. Maybe a nice comment, a thumbs up, a like, a tick, whatever it is. It's always appreciated. And finally, if you want to help out the show right away, in a way you know, to help the show grow, to expand on material we can review for the show, get new equipment, get different guests on, maybe even allow me to take some time off work, or you might just want to say thanks for all the bloody hard work I put into this show. Maybe you just fucking like Paul or nothing. Then please consider joining our Patreon family. Of course, Patreon is a platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself, though it's not just a gimme. If you support this show, you get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed, so anything I review with other people gets put up early now. And so, for example, I've got an episode with Ken Michaels about Driving Rain, an episode with TJ Shanoff from the Untitled Beatles podcast about Driving Rain. They've both been recorded prior. They are now both up on the Patreon 
Uh, you can watch them. So, you know, not only do you get the unedited, unfiltered episode, you get it weeks early and you get the video format, which you don't get anywhere else. Uh, you get the same early access to all episodes of Macca in your attic uh, days, sometimes weeks ahead of schedule as well. You get access to all of the bonus uh, episodes of Paul or Nothing, all the lost episodes of Paul or Nothing, unreleased episodes of Paul or Nothing. Uh, you get all the scripts that I use for each episode as well. I'm, I'm putting out all of them. And finally, you get access to the bonus Patreon vlog series. The latest one I did actually was just a little uh, bit of housekeeping, really, just a bit of a State of the Union address. But I also went through some uh, other Paul McCartney and Beatles-based memorabilia and items that I've bought for myself in the recent days as well. So it's a little bit of a, a bonus bonus as well. But we will be back on schedule next week with an episode where I'm going to go through lost Paul McCartney tours. I'm going to go through London Town Tug of War and Flaming Pie and create my own ideal set lists for each. Can't wait to show you that, folks. But yeah, keep your eyes peeled for that one the future and before we press on to driving rain itself before we put our wet keys in the ignition i cannot mention patreon without mentioning my wonderful patreon family people who make this show possible who you know allow me to get out of bed when i'm feeling dead a little reference for you driving rain fans out there i've got to mention my patrons john carp brian brigman annie mcneil boss 76 Jeff H, David Stabersky, Mitzi Carter, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Richard Shuley, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, Matt Phillips, and, of course, Mr. Percy Thrillington itself. Anyway... Now that the housekeeping is out of the way, it's time to continue our drive in the rain. Right after these messages. Paul McCartney gets back to the basics with his unforgettable new album, Driving Rain. And when the time comes round, we will be duty bound, despite too easy ride to see. Driving Rain is the all-new studio album from Paul McCartney. From a lover to to a friend and the special bonus track Freedom. Talking about everyone supposing you've already listened to part one of this driving rain series we are now going to be taking a slightly more 
uplifting and upbeat route and jaunt as we start off by exploring the staggering myriad of McCartney's other musical projects between this album and the last, aka Flaming Pie. These won't be full reviews or anything like that, just little tasters, little hors d'oeuvres, little need-to-know cliff note versions uh, of these projects, uh, whilst also being, you know, teaser trailers for future episodes of the podcast. There is an incredible array of genres and styles on display here, and it makes me realise how lucky I am as much as having any new McCartney pr- uh, product to review. Like, during this period, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, there was so much if you were a Paul fan. Maybe not in terms of general studio albums. You did have to wait between Flaming Pie and Driving Rain for that, but in between that, you got more than enough to wet your beak, and some of it is, you know, a lot of people's favourite work as well. It's also really exciting to see Paul just be so bountiful and fruitful and flourish so well during this period. You know, it's not a very fondly remembered period of McCartney's, you know, lifetime, whether that's by him, by MPL, or the fandom. But, you know, it really is fruitful. And, you know, I've mentioned before on the show, when McCartney has his back against the wall, that is when he is maybe not the most, but more creative, maybe maybe the most creative. And, you know, we saw loads of uh, bountiful creativity on Flaming Pie, with him dealing with Linda dying. And now, obviously, in this period, it's him coping with Linda's death. And we're going to be seeing him throwing himself into a staggering multitude of projects. He's never going to be free. There's so many plates spinning. He's got his fingers in so many pies. And, you know, for a ravenous Paul McCartney fan, you know, I'm a kid in a candy shop. And I wonder if people knew how lucky they truly were during this time. But yeah, starting off, we have something that was written and performed in this period, but would not be released until 2006. Yes, it is indeed time once again for us to touch on some more McCartney classical music. We've already had the Liverpool Oratorio and Standing Stone, and now we have a little title that I know I'm going to say wrong. Echi Cormium? Essi Cormium? Ecce Cormium? Meum? Meum? I'm going to stop talking now. Oh no, it's the first word of the next uh, sentence. Echi Cormium is an oratorio in four movements, scored for choir and orchestra. The piece and eventual album's origin lay in a commission from the Magdalen College at Oxford University. Paul was invited by Anthony Smith, the then president of Magdalen College, and the guy in the last episode who slagged off Heather Mills, to compose something to set the seal on a new concert for the school. His hope was for a choral piece that could be sung by young people the world over in the same way that Handel's Messiah is. Yeah, that's taken from a quote. That's not me making a comparison there. I don't know what Handel's Messiah sounds like. Now, it seems that Paul had already been working on this piece of music before Smith commissioned it, as it is described in the literature as having taken Paul eight years to complete. The dates are all a little iffy, but it seems like Paul in this period was 
always going to have another classical album in the works. And so whether he wrote something new for the commission, used something he'd already been working on, or even got something out of his back pocket, is irrelevant, really. It just depends on whether it's good or not. Of course, Paul is still knee-deep in Lipper, his own educational venture, and so this would be a sensible thing for him to do in terms of a potential future bit of back-scratching, because... You know, it never hurts to have the president of an Oxford college in the old back pocket for personal or private need. You know, hey, why not combine making one of these classical albums that do sell pretty well and do well on the classical charts and my own networking? <laughs> why not, Paul? Why not? However, following Linda's death in 1998, the first performance was delayed eventually forcing the premiere to be pushed back to 2001, with a studio recording taking place in 2006. Each of the four movements of Echecormium begins with unaccompanied voices, and text combines both English and, to a lesser degree, Latin. As Paul explained, Something I found out later, being a complete innocent in the field, was that most people find a text and set it to music, which... It would have been very convenient to know that, but I didn't, so I started writing the music and then putting my own text to it, which is probably completely the wrong way around to do it. It didn't matter. I suppose, you know, in that respect, it meant that it was a bit less conventional. Paul's knowledge of Latin comes from his classical education at the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys, where he had learned three languages by the time he was 12. Paul also said, Not all of that has been retained over the years as my path went in other directions, but my love of language remains, and as Latin is known and sung by choirs all over the world, I felt it would be appropriate to use it at times during the piece. Paul started with the music and then looked for the subject. Several ideas for lyrics occurred to him, but they only gelled when he took part in a concert at John Tavener's Music in the Church of St. Ignatius Loyola in New York. Quote, While I was doing my bit, I was looking around the church and I saw a statue, and underneath it was written, Ecce Cormium. I had done some Latin at school, and I always had a fondness for it. So, I worked it out. I believe it means, Behold my heart. In 2001, the first version of Echecormium was given its first preview performance at Magdalen Choir College, conducted by Bill Ives at the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford. This was a great learning experience for Paul, as he says. Eventually, I made it all come together through correcting a lot of misapprehensions. A lot was learned before the Sheldonian performance, but a lot was learned afterwards. An experienced choral composer knows that children can't be given huge, sustained passages. They don't have the energy and the stamina. At the Sheldonian, there was some quite hard stuff that I didn't realise because I'd done it on the synthesizer, which has endless stamina. But during the first half of the performance, the solo treble couldn't come on for the second half because I think I'd used him up by the first half. There are things that people either learn because they're taught them immediately at the first lesson or you learn through the years. So it was good to go through the piece a lot of times and we took out a huge choral section and gave it to the orchestra. If it had been a Beatles song, I would have known how to do it. But this 
was a completely different ball game. So yeah, Eke Cormium was a very big McCartney classical movement, for lack of a, of a better phrase, you know. It did very well in the charts. I believe it got to number two in the US classical charts, which, you know, nothing to sniff at. On May 30, 2007, Paul was presented with the Best Album Award at the Classical Brits for Echo Cormium at the Royal Albert Hall. And, yeah, I can't wait to eventually get to some more McCartney classical stuff. Well, I say more, I haven't covered it at all. It is one of those segments of McCartney's history that I really haven't touched on due to real lack of qualifications. I am completely unqualified to do Paul or Nothing as it is, you know, talking about pop music, but I'm definitely scared to uh, approach Paul's classical stuff, especially since Two Legs already had Alan Cozen on for their classical episode, so I feel like I can't do that now as well. Good for them. Uh, I've got to think of another angle to tackle it. I really do. But yeah, let's press on um, to not another project, but another topic uh, basically, upon finishing the last part of the series, I found something that if I had known about, uh, I, w- I would have included it in part one. And as it turns out, the words Eke Cormium have more meaning in the McCartney story than first meets the eye. Now, before I continue, do we all know what a coat of arms is? If you don't know, what it's a special symbol or picture that you'd see on like a knight's banner or shield in the Middle Ages. It's a heraldic description and depiction of your family, and it, it represents you as a whole and your family. Usually it's a shield in the middle with like two creatures flanking either side of it. There might be like a wreath or some swords, some detailing above and below, maybe a motto. And... It's the motto that brings us here. So basically, Paul was granted his own coat of arms on the 18th of June 2001, which you should also know is his birthday, his 59th birthday to be precise. And he was presented with this coat by the College of Arms, part of the Royal Household, to the cost of £3,500. And this coat of arms was presented on an ornate scroll instead of a red box with gold trimmings, you know, lots of great British ceremony and pomp there. McCartney had actually applied for the coat of arms originally in 1997, the year he had been knighted, but the death of Linda, again, lingering over, hanging on, had you know, delayed this in both you know, getting it off the ground as, as well as its design and approval. The coat depicts a guitar held by a liver bird, a reference to his musical career and his Liverpool roots. The left-facing helmet on the uh, image has an open visor, as is customary for knights. Obviously, Paul is himself a knight. The shield features two black curved emblems divided in two, resulting in four shapes, resembling beetles' backs, symbolising the other three beetles and Paul. The two black circles above are representative of records and compact discs with guitar strings overlaid. The result is a simple and distinct design that makes a clear reference to the career that Paul has had without departing from 
you know, what would be known as the standard vocabulary of the traditional English system of heraldry. Yeah, not too much to say about this one. It's just a fun little piece of trivia that I could not include. I just think it's really cool that Paul has a coat of arms. Yeah, really, really, really think that's cool. But yeah, let's just crack right on. Right, onto the first project of this period to actually come out as an album. Uh, you know, not in you know, the mid-2000s. And this is something that is both very sad to talk about, very exciting to talk about, and is also criminally underrated. Of course, we spent a lot of the last episode uh, talking about Linda McCartney, and we also spent quite a bit of a bonus episode a few months ago with Dr. Alison Bumstead talking about this particular topic as well. And yeah, this is the culmination of Linda's musical life in one compilation album. It's the release of Wide Prairie. in Paris, waiting for a flight, when this guy came up to me and said, have you got a light? Well, I was born. is the posthumous Linda McCartney compilation album whereby all of her solo songs plus one Wings lead vocal track are all brought together on one single handy release. Linda, as we know, was never solely or even casually focused on music, but she still managed to accrue a fair amount of songs to her name. Now, many of these tunes were either obscure-ass charity singles or buried on other random projects or only included in a film, or barely got a wide release. And so, for the longest time, diehard fans had been sending the McCartneys, uh, and then just the McCartney alone, letters imploring him to make a compilation album of Linda's work. It had clearly already been on Paul's mind, and then, with Linda's untimely death and all the ensuing emotional turmoil that preceded it, Paul, looking for closure, presumably, in many ways, decided that this was going to be one of those fitting tributes to Linda and a divine gift to her fans that would, you know, collate all of those songs that she had on file and give the fans access to that music. I can't emphasise how rare some of that stuff was, and before the proliferation of the internet and streaming, you know, you really had to be... You're, with your ear to the to the to to the ground to <laughs> know any of these songs uh, or have access to them or even know they exist, uh, yeah, some of those charity ones especially. But yeah, 
it was a godsend for the McCartney fan, Linda Orpel. On this album, we have Cook of the House from Wings at the Speed of Sound, You're Into Nightfish from the film of the same name, Seaside Woman, uh, the Susie Redstripes track, both The White Coated Man and Cow, the song she wrote with Carla Lane, there's old rock and roll and reggae covers, and a couple of tracks recorded shortly before her death. It really is a compelling collection of songs that highlight the charmingly limited talents of Linda. It certainly is quirky and is not meant to be viewed as a conventional album from a conventional artist, as I discussed with Alison, but once viewed as a piece of maybe outsider art or alternative art, it becomes endlessly fascinating. It was eventually released on the 26th of October 1998, not to the greatest amount of fanfare ever, and again, as I detailed in that aforementioned conversation, uh, go and check it out if you haven't already, the album really didn't score much favour or charity from the rock intelligentsia or the general press at the time and was largely regarded as a novelty album. Maybe some of them were a little kinder and called it a curiosity, or uh, others just called it a genuine collection of bad songs. It was clear that it was for the superfans only, and because of that, combined with the less than stellar reviews, meant that it only reached number 127 in the UK charts. There were also two singles alongside the album, with the title track making it all the way to the top 75 at number 74, with the other single, uh, The Light Comes From Within, charting at number 56. Now, when it comes to this album, again, I covered this with Alison on an episode, it is important to remember that A, Linda herself did not release this album, and B, Paul didn't have to release it at all. It is just something that exists to be. It is just a handy little thing. It doesn't have to be compared to Sgt. Pepper. It's important that when you listen to it, that you see it simply as a tribute to his wife, and that Paul is giving the gift of his wife, arguably his most valued treasure, to us, the fans. Still, its very existence is bittersweet, and it's hard not to get emotional during some parts of the album. I can't wait to do an actual song-by-song song of this. I didn't do that with Alison. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talk about some Linda tracks in the future. I dig far more of them than I don't, which I know that isn't the case for many of you out there. But, yeah, I'd love to get a dialogue of Linda songs going as well. Of course, you can listen to Wide Prairie on streaming platforms right now. And if you haven't listened to it ever or listened to it for a while, I I implore you because her craft deserves your attention. Moving a little further down the timeline, we have the release of yet another Paul McCartney side project thingy mabob. Only this time, rather than classical, we are returning to the land of dance, trance, spacey, new agey, funky beat music. Whatever that is. Yeah, folks, you can hear the sirens in the distance. The fireman is on his way. And with him, he's brought his second album called Rushes.
folks. Out of all these little preview slots, this is the one that I want to go the least detail into, as I will literally be organising its recording as soon as part three is released. It means I'll get to do another tip-top pod with my friend Tom, and I want my experience to be as pure as possible. And I have not repeated uh, any information too close together, you know? One cool piece of info that I did find, though, and that I can't resist, is the title. So the title of this album comes from the lyric from Penny Lane, and the fireman rushes in from the pouring rain. Very strange. Now, first of all, that's really cool. You know, it continues that, like, you know, Beatles nod and a wink for the fans. But it's also just incredibly fireman-esque if such a thing exists. Like, it's absolutely perfect. That being said, the Cliff Note version of the Cliff Note version of what you need to know is that this album saw the return of the uh, the firemen, both original firemen, aka Paul McCartney himself, and the producer Youth. They came together once again to make some funky, if somewhat sinister, ambient dance music. It was again recorded at Hog Hill Mill, aka Paul's home studio, in the February of 98. And that's really all the info that there is available online, which does worry me somewhat in terms of said future Rush's episode, but oh well. Now, for anyone doing the timeline, you will know that this was uh, recorded just before the family was going to go to America and live out Linda's final days, which was extensively detailed last episode. And Youth actually speaks about this in a 2018 interview, saying, We recorded the album when Linda was going through the final stages of her cancer. She was very involved with the project again. It was very sad when she died. When I listen to that album now, it sounds like a requiem for her. It's very beautiful. Now, I know some of you out there may be wondering why he was focusing on an album rather than tending to Linda, but I don't think it's like that at all. You know, they never spent a night apart, so I don't think he's neglecting her at a studio while she's ill or anything. And the collaboration between Paul and Youthy is very democratic. And so this is another project where... You know, we're going to see this a lot today. This is another project where Paul is able to do an album without having to commit to months and months and months of like recording sessions or anything like that. He knows youth can take what they both work on together and finish it off. You know, they have a great rapport together. They do make brilliant music together. They do know each other inside and out. And so... For a man who can't stop working, who also probably wants to take his mind off things, it makes sense that he would make an album in this way. Besides, you know, I don't think Linda would want him hanging around the house moping all the time anyway, and in all likelihood I reckon she encouraged it. Released on the 21st of September 1998, Rushes was by far the more critically well-received of the two Fireman albums thus far. Critics praise the fact that it wasn't an album built off the same sample over and over again, with a wide variety of songs and melodies and hooks, uh, as well as the album's lack of reliance on older McCartney works. Though several unreleased McCartney songs were ultimately used as inspiration for several tracks on the album, uh, sounding like a Cold Cuts uh, episode here, these songs were called Let Me Love You Always and Hey Now, what are you looking at me for? 
both recordings from 1995, which I've never heard, and I do hope off-cut bootlegs of them do exist. I've already started listening to Rushes, just to let you know, and let me say, folks, I can see me and my co-host Tom having a far more positive conversation surrounding the album than the first time around. No spoilers or anything, but the variety is already one of the album's greatest strengths compared to the you know, the first one. And it's basically everything you ever wanted from that initial release, uh, a.k.a. Strawberries Ocean Ship Forest. And, you know, with Rushes, you get one of the best things that you get on a McCartney album, which is just this breadth of quality. You know, not only does he do one thing amazingly, but he does many things amazingly. And both he and youth do that on Rushes. And I can't wait to get into that when we do the episode. Pressing forth, and we have something that we haven't had on this podcast in a long old while, which is a Paul McCartney covers album. Is it stocked entirely with old-timey rock and roll classics, per chance, sir? Yeah, you bet it is. And it's called Run, Devil, Run. Run, Devil, Run! The angels having fun, making winners out of sinners, better leave me for solo studio album by Paul McCartney. It is mostly stocked with covers of both familiar and obscure 1950s rock and roll tunes, along with three original McCartney compositions written in the same style, including the title track. So yeah, this is basically just Chobber, but at a different time with a different band and with three McCartney-style originals thrown in there for good measure. This was his first true project following Linda's death, the previous year and so McCartney rather than wanting to go right back into a proper solo album instead felt the need to get back quote unquote to his roots and perform some of the music he loved as a teenager again much like Chobber though one of the songs from this album uh, one of the songs Paul chose was Ricky Nelson's Lonesome Town which, if you remember back to the concert for Linda on our last episode, was the only song he sang in tribute to Linda at that show that wasn't one of his own songs. So, you know, do not go into this album thinking that Linda is not drenched all over it, even though he's not directly singing about her. Wanting to keep things fresh, uh, a lesson he'd learnt from his experiences working on the Beatles anthology project and put to use on Flaming Pie, McCartney planned to cut the album as quickly as possible in a much similar way to the uh, way Beatles had recorded in their early years. 
Paul asked White Album and Back to the Egg veteran Chris Thomas to help produce the album, and McCartney booked time at Abbey Road Studios to facilitate the sessions. Chris Thomas, on the recording session, said he wasn't thinking it was going to be the next big record, he was just free to enjoy himself. Wanting to work with reliable and empathetic musicians, Paul called up old collaborator Pink Floyd's David Gilmour to play guitar. He also recruited uh, Mick Green on guitar, uh, the keyboardists uh, Pete Wingfield and Geraint Watkins, or Geraint Watkins, and on drums he had Deep Purple's Ian Pace and Dave Mattax, who had previously worked with Paul during the Tug of War and Pipes of Peace sessions. McCartney played bass, though he also did a bit of electric as per the usual. Uh, the sessions were rather laid back, with no post-production. McCartney had brought a list of material that he wished to play. The sessions took place in May, March and April, or March, April, May of 1999, and it was completed at the end of the spring, being released on the 4th of October, 99 here in the UK, and then a day later in the US. Run Devil Run wound up reaching number 12 in both the UK and Norway, number 18 in Australia, number 21 in Germany, number 23 in Sweden, number 27 in the UK, and number 30 in Japan. Here in the UK, it actually went gold, and was the 117th top-selling album of the year, which is actually still a lot of money, folks. Let's not mince words here. Of course, this is the album that led to McCartney doing the first of his recorded and filmed Cavern Club sets on the 4th of December 1999. Again, mentioned that on the last episode as well. Overall, from what I'm aware, this is a pretty positively received album amongst the fandom and by the rock critique. I've seen books and posts that you know, refer to this as being his best-reviewed album of the 90s, or one of my favourite albums of his of the 90s, and yet it is the McCartney album that I really have no connection with whatsoever. I actually haven't listened to this at all in any capacity, which is strange because, you know, I am such a huge fan of Chobber. Uh, you know, it, it would make sense that I'll I would like this album, and I'm not going in with too much worry. I think I am going to like it. It's McCartney doing rock and roll covers, you know, you know what you're getting here. And he would have to try pretty hard uh, for it not to do well with me. But you never know. Of course, this is the, the album that uh, spawned one of the greatest bits of McCartney memorabilia. We've seen it a couple of times on Macket in the Attic which is the gorgeous red box of singles that make up the album. Like, like they release the entire album as a bunch of singles uh, with individual artwork and stuff like that. It's a gorgeous piece. And there's a bonus song that is only available in that box set, which is really cool. Not like McCartney 3 Imagined, where there was a meant to be uh, a song that was physical only and then was released on Spotify. This is still uh, unique and is not available on streaming. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to, to this one, folks. Uh, I'm not exactly chomping at the bit compared to other ones, but I feel like I'm going to eat those words and this is going to be up there with, you know, Chobber and Rock and Roll and Holidays. Yeah, I think it's going to fit in quite well. Next up, and we have... Oh, my God. 
I can't believe this. Another classical work from Paul. Though, at least, he has the decency to include the word classical in the title to scare off the normies and actually release it in this period. This time, it's working classical. Released on the 1st of November 1999, just one month after Run Devil Run, we have Paul doing a seeming 180 about phase turn in terms of genre. After cutting it loose with some music that is ingrained in his psyche, that he can more or less do in his sleep, and went back to what is arguably the most challenging aspect of his career with another classical album. I mean, Fuck, McCartney is really putting a lot of varied material out in this era, isn't he? Like, it must be frustrating for people who just want him to focus on the main albums, but for someone who is really into the weirder side of Paul, and as someone who wants to make as many episodes as possible, you know, this is just such an exciting time in McCartney's career. Like, if I was there at, at that moment, you know... I'd be overjoyed. There's just so much product coming out. Though, I wonder if there's any significance between the pairing of Run, Devil, Run and Working Classical, as, you know, Paul has spoken several times about how rock and pop is basically just the modern version of classical music and vice versa. Maybe. I don't know. Probably not. Being the follow-up to 1997's Standing Stone, Working Classical was another example of Paul recontextualising his back catalogue, this time in an orchestral setting. Obviously, we've seen something similar be done with Thrillington, so this isn't completely left of field. You know, basically, the concept behind this album was to place pre-existing, and in some cases very well-known, McCartney songs into an orchestral context, these include Junk, Woman, Beautiful, My Love, Maybe I'm Amazed, Calico Skies, Cold Mirth Girl, Some Days, She's My Baby, and The Lovely Linda. All of which sound fucking great, and it was cool to see McCartney acknowledge such a broad spectrum of his career. Also for this project, McCartney unveiled some new pieces, namely Haymakers, Midwife, Spiral, and Tuesday. Though, for the final song, you will have to cast your mind back to our Fleming Pie part one episode where we spoke about an evening with Paul McCartney and friends, a piano piece of Paul's aka Leaf was performed. That original live rendition of A Leaf was originally uh, released back on the 21st of April 1995 as a CD single and was actually re-recorded for a proper studio release on Working Classical. As per the norm, Paul was only ever going to work with the best of the best for this project, and performing these new arrangements are the London Symphony Orchestra and the Lomar Quartet, with special orchestrations arranged by noted musicians Richard Rodney Bennett, 
Jonathan Tunick or Tunick and Andy Stein, you know, whoever they are. Once again, as per the norm with Macca's classical releases, the album was a huge success in the classical charts, again, whatever they are, reaching the number two spot just behind Leslie Garrett's album From the Heart, and actually managed to sell enough in one week to get to the number 99 spot on Billboard for a single solitary week. Now, folks, that might not sound like much, but for a classical album with no appeal to the common market at all, that actually is very impressive. Shout out to Paul there. And yeah, for like the 10th time this episode, this is another album that I'm yet to cover. I do have a tertiary knowledge of the songs therein, but only the ones that are rearrangements of the classic McCartney canon. I don't really know the new compositions. I'm looking forward to checking them out. And I really hope they're good because I want to compliment this whole album. You know, the, the kind of reorchestrations that I've heard so far are absolutely charming and winning. So, yeah, I, I hope the other arrangements are worth it and, you know, work within the wider context of the album rather than just taking space from what could have been other arrangements. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Though, I imagine it might be the best album to get someone gently into McCartney's classical music if they're a little sceptical about the whole genre, which, you know, is totally me. Oh, and before we move on, and before I forget, I never realised until this episode, and I'm pretty embarrassed to say the least, but the title of this is actually a pun on working class and classical and for a man who loves a bad pun as much as myself, I don't know how it slipped through the cracks. Anyway, we all know John was supposedly the working class hero, but that has actually been challenged over the years. Although what hasn't been challenged is Paul's working class roots. The wordplay of the album's title is supposedly a way of making clear that despite his lofty ambitions, Paul was still a man of the people and hadn't forgotten where he came from. Pressing ever onwards now, and of course, as you know, these background slash contextual episodes are not bound by our lax no Beatles rule here at Port or Nothing, and so we now get to talk about a Beatles release from around this time. Simultaneously one of the most needed, yet most obscure albums in the catalogue, actually. Certainly a very curious release, to say the least. This is the Yellow Submarine song track. I've got a word or two To say about the things that you do You're telling all those lies About the good things that we can have If we close our eyes Do what you want to do everyone. The Yellow Submarine soundtrack is a compilation slash soundtrack album by the Beatles for the 1999 re-release of the 1968 film Yellow Submarine. Now this album may seem a little 
random in the grand scheme of things, but but actually, after some research, this whole thing has been overdue for a while. And if anything, it feels like a bit of backtracking, an, an apology on behalf of Apple and EMI. As we know, the Beatles' Yellow Submarine album slash soundtrack had always been an ugly duckling in their collection, only having four new songs and George Martin's score. You know, so the album had never seen much of a re-release or remastering since it first came out, leaving it woefully unupdated compared to the rest of the catalogue, especially in terms of mixing and sound quality, leaving it wide open for a remaster. The Yellow Submarine film was re-released in cinemas and for home video for its 30th anniversary on the 13th of September 1999 in the United Kingdom and the following day in the US. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, the right holders for the film at the time, used digital restoration techniques for the visuals. The new print had also been remixed in Dolby 5.1 surround sound and even restored the Hey Bulldog sequence which previously had only been shown in European cinemas. The home video and DVD release also included the 1968 documentary A Mod Odyssey, which is you know, the behind-the-scenes feature, uh, you know, making of. To coincide with the 1999 reissue, Apple Corps released a brand new stereo mix of all of the songs featured in the film. With George Martin now retired, the new stereo and 5.1 mixes were supervised by Abbey Road engineer Peter Cobbin, which is so rare it actually had never been done not for any of the CD release of the Beatles catalogue in the late 80s, uh, nor the 2009 remastering of the albums. The remixed audio was released as Yellow Submarine Song Track. This was the first Beatles remix project since Anthology and paved way for the Love album and Giles Martin's remixes of the Beatles' other albums. The album contains all but one of the Beatles songs used in the film, including several that were not included on the original 1969 Yellow Submarine album. A Day in the Life was excluded as EMI didn't want too many songs from Pepper on the compilation, which makes sense. But if you want to be specific as to, you know, how obscure some of the songs on this album are, like, you get a couple of seconds of Love You Too and Think For Yourself in the Yellow Submarine film, and they are here on this song track in full. You know, it gives you a kind of scope as to what they were going for here. Uh, the album debuted in the UK, peaking at number eight and selling 19,000 copies in its first week. It also peaked at number 15 on the US Billboard 200, with 68,000 copies sold in its opening week. In France, it also did debut at number 13. We can assume that worldwide, the album probably sold around the time of release a about 150,000 copies, a quarter of which goes to Paul, which, once more, is a pretty penny being added to his pocket. You know, this isn't the most oft-remembered period in Paul's history, but there's a lot of big earners for him, nonetheless. The biggest of which is actually coming next, because we're going to go forward from one Beatles release to another blooming Fab Four album, this is another compilation, though this isn't any re-release or update. This is a brand new concept with a brand new track list, though it's really going to blow the Yellow Submarine song track out of the water in terms of sales and cultural impact. This is The Beatles One.
One, or Beatles One, as it's more commonly known, is a Beatles compilation album that was compiled by producer George Martin and the surviving members of the band. It really is the main sequel to the anthology, I guess, in terms of projects they did together. The idea behind the album is that the track listing was made up of the 27 Beatles songs that went to number one in the UK on the Record Retailer Top 50 chart or in the United States on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Essentially, the album is a combination of both the US and UK versions of the 1982 compilation 20 Greatest Hits, with the much-delayed and much-appreciated edition of Something, which was left off 20 Greatest Hits because of time constraints. Before this album, Beatle fans would only have access to these 27 songs via the last two remastered CD releases, firstly on the respective Beatles studio albums released in 87, as well as Past Masters Volume 1 and Past Masters Volume 2 released in 88, along with the second remastering that was made available for CD uh, in 1993. So, what all of that means is that back in this era, just before iPods and downloading music really started to take over, and well before streaming, this album was the quote-unquote best Beatles Greatest Hits collection. This, in terms of value for money and song selection was really unparalleled. It was a great little package. You know, I couldn't imagine a better album to get someone into the Beatles in this period if I tried. And still to this day, you know, even if you just view it on streaming as the ultimate playlist, you know, it's a very well put together bunch of songs and it's a great listen from start to finish. Now, there are a few exceptions to the rule of what was going to be included on the album. Like, for example, despite Harrison's For You Blue charting at number one on Billboard, along with the A-side The Long and Winding Road, Capitol Records treated For You Blue as strictly a B-side and did not promote it as an A-side. So that's not on the album. Day Tripper was included on one since it charted as a number one in the UK and as a double side with We Can Work It Out, whilst in the US... Only We Can Work It Out was the number one. Two singles written by John and released in both the UK and US were omitted as they did not top either the record retailer chart or the Billboard Hot 100. Those were Please Please Me and Strawberry Fields Forever. Uh, Strawberry Fields was uh, famously beat by Engelberg Humperdinck's Please Release Me. Uh, let's just quickly find out what beat Please Please Me to number one. And it says here it was somehow number two behind Frank Ifield's Wayward Wind and Cliff Richard's Summer Holiday. Apparently, I might have to reconfirm that. If anyone can email in to gmail.com and confirm that, that would be great. But yeah, with Please Please Me, it topped all of the British charts except for Record Retailer, which is the main metric that they were making the number one album. It made it to number one on the New Musical Express chart and the Melody Maker chart, but because it was only number two on Record Retailer, it's not on the album. And as it turns out, as I've just found out now, but Strawberry Fields actually also made it to number one on the Melody Maker chart as well. So, you know, what was number one in the UK in the 60s before a kind of unified uh, chart system was definitely less definitive than it is now but 
you know. The people at Apple were certainly knowledgeable and they accept this as the given truth. So I'm not going to argue with it that much. But, you know, it would have been nice to have those songs on as well. But then you can basically say that with like every single Beatle release. You know, you, you can just keep adding more and more and more. It was also the start of the modern crusade to constantly upgrade, remix and remaster Beatles songs. You know, the songs on one were remastered specifically for the release in 2000. Uh, according to the line notes of the album, the original analog masters were digitally remastered at 24 bits resolution, processed using Sonic Solutions no noise technology, and mastered to 16 bit using Prism SNS noise shaping. Whatever that is. The remastering was overseen by Peter Mew of Abbey Road Studios. And it was all completed on site. In 2011, one was remastered again and reissued on CD. And in 2015, it was remastered again by Giles Martin. Uh, I'm sure we're due for another remastering of one. Now, to say that the reception for this album was surpassed by all critical and commercial expectations is somewhat of an understatement. This album is one of the true examples of how these songs are still popular and still super relevant in the modern day and how the public will still buy this product given the opportunity. Rather fittingly, One reached the number one spot in over 35 countries, achieving the record for the album debuting at the top of the most national charts ever. It became the highest selling album of the year 2000 and sometime later, of the entire decade, despite being released at the very start of it. Yes, folks, the biggest album of the 2000s was Beatles 1, right at the start of the, of the fucking decade. No one in the next nine and a half years did anything to match this in terms of sales. This achievement made the Beatles the first and only artist to have best-selling albums in two different decades, with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band being the best-selling album of the 1960s, which is rather interesting, actually, because there are no songs from Pepper on one at all. And then with number one, the Beatles also achieved having an album hit the number one position in the US in four non-consecutive decades, uh, the 1960s, the 1970s, 1990s, and the 2000s. In 2009, Apple Corps, the Beatles' company, stated that worldwide sales of one had exceeded 31 million blooming copies. Worldwide in 2000, the album sold 13.8 million copies, with 2 million or more copies sold during two consecutive weeks. In the United Kingdom, one became the Beatles' 15th number one album, with sales of 319,126 copies, achieving record sales for only one week in 2000. One was the first album to stay at the number one top spot for nine weeks in almost ten years, the last being the Eurythmics Greatest Hits. It was the best-selling album in the UK of 2000 and the fourth best-selling album of the 2000s in the UK. By its 11th week, it had sold over 2 million copies in the UK. It spent a total of 46 weeks inside the top 75 in July 2013, it was certified 10 times platinum by the British phonographic industry for over 3 million copies sold. It's the 21st best-selling album in the UK, according to the assessment by the official charts company and BPI, uh, that counts album sales from uh, 1956 to the present day. 
and it's the second best selling Beatles album in the UK, only beaten again by Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which is the UK's third best selling album of all time. As of July 2016, one has sold now 3.23 million copies in the UK. Now, that extra jump uh, is probably because most of people are just now streaming one, but that means there could be potentially thousands and thousands and thousands more than that simple 230,000 leap that are actually listening to one as well. So, you know, yeah, a lot of people are still listening to one. It's still very clear. Its impact is still being felt. And it is clear that it was another very big release for McCartney in this period. Like, <laughs> I feel like I'm just reinforcing just how much cash McCartney has to burn, but I really feel like I have to because, you know, he's going to spend so much of it in this period on certain people. Not I don't want to mention any names or be crass or anything like that. But, you know, this is certainly the good life for Paul, you know, and you know, it very much reflects the world. You know, 2000 was great for everyone. And then stuff in 2001 that we spoke about on the last episode will happen and change everything forever. But yeah, if the Yellow Submarine soundtrack was a solid payday for Paul, then this album was like basically giving him a free mansion. With the solid residuals that Beatles records generate, this album would basically ensure Paul had money to burn for the rest of his life for relatively little work. You know, he couldn't possibly be on a higher financial note now. People knew Paul was rich and had hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions and millions or tens of millions of pounds. It is around this period in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, you know, especially after being knighted, that Paul really does start gaining that reputation of being the uber rich guy, you know, appearing on Forbes lists and stuff like that. And having another Beatles album be released, <laughs> one that is almost as successful as Sgt. Pepper, especially, you know, 30 years after the band broke up, is certainly something worth taking note of, especially considering that I imagine it cost a lot more to buy copies of one, even with inflation, than it was to buy copies of Sgt. Pepper when that was released as well. So comparatively, he's doing very well at this point. He's doing very, very, very well. Okay, now that we've had a bunch of relatively normal releases and re-releases, it's time to go back and join Rushes from earlier in this episode in terms of weird McCartney output. Now we're going to talk about the very accurately titled Liverpool Sound Collage. Let's 
John finally got just after that then we'll do both of the do what you want to do 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 do what you want to do
So, yeah, I'm sure many of you have heard about this album. You've probably definitely seen the cover, skimmed over the Wikipedia entry, maybe even checked out a few seconds of it, but I'm guessing many of you haven't even listened to the whole thing. I know I haven't. Yet, anyway. (laughs) Even smaller numbers still will actually own a copy or even seen one. This is obscure of the obscure in terms of full McCartney releases, but oh my golly gosh, does it ever sound up my street. Now, what is so interesting about this album is that it's definitely a collaborative effort. Paul's name is on the front cover, but almost every track will have someone else on with him. Uh, One of the contributors uh, are the Super Furry Animals. We've definitely brought up them before. They come back in the story again later. And Youth makes an appearance, making this a semi-second-and-a-half, 2.5 Fireman album. That's, you know, how could I not be drawn to that? Also, something else that makes the album really cool is that four out of those five songs, a.k.a. the non-Youth ones, are co-credited to the Beatles. Yes, that's right, the Beatles themselves, making this a semi-half Beatles album too. On Wikipedia, though, it does set the record straight by saying, because McCartney was so heavily involved in its creation, in addition to his production credit, Liverpool Sound Collage is considered a part of his main discography and is filed under his name. So I guess, you know, this is another main album in the same way that Chobber and Run Devil Run is, or is this a main album in the way that Flaming Pie and Dragon Rain are? It, it, it clarifies everything and then makes everything unclear at the same time. <laughs> Look, again, folks, this is another one that I don't want to talk about in too much detail. The greater amount of din, uh, depth will come in the episode itself. I am drawn to this one, though. I'm excited. Uh, I've, I've, I've put it to one side because I know that I'm really going to enjoy it when I do get to it. You know, I haven't finished it in full, but from what I have heard, uh, it doesn't feel like a Fireman album, and instead I've gotten these glimpses of just pure mad Professor McCartney, and that's just genuinely enthralling for me. How can, again, how can I not love that? Weirdly, there's only five songs on the album, so you know we've gone down from eight songs to five, which is actually compensated by the fact that three of the tracks, not the one you just heard, are between 13 and 16 minutes long. But what is the Liverpool sound collage, I hear you ask? Well, the artist, Peter Blake, who you really should know by now if you are following the Beatles story, asked Paul to create something musical and with a Liverpool spirit to it in order to complement his own concurrent artwork exhibition. McCartney ended up harking all the way back to session chatter by the Beatles, hence their quote-unquote involvement, and using snippets of his 1991 classical piece, Liverpool Oratorio to create tracks for the album. On the track Made Up, he can also be heard walking through the streets and asking various pedestrians to give their impressions of Liverpool and the Beatles. The album also incorporates chopped up beats and digital manipulation of assorted sound clips. Oh god, that sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, it was quite successful in terms of being a kind of avant-garde, artsy album. It did well in its own spheres. It didn't really hit the charts or do that much damage or anything like that. Though it was nominated for a 2001 Grammy Award for Best Alternative Music Album. Now, I know some of you are out there thinking, hang on, wasn't there a famous bit of trivia 
about this album. And yes, yes, there is. In return for being permitted to remix some Beatles music for the Liverpool Sound collage, McCartney was, in kind, asked to perform on the Super Fairy Animals' next album, Rings Around the World, on which he is credited as providing celery and carrot on the track Receptacle for the Respectable. I'm sure we've mentioned that before here on the show, but if you haven't heard it, here's the isolated track of McCartney chewing celery and carrot. Finally, folks, we have the last of the non-Driving Rain-based releases from this period, and it's content that is tailor-made for me, something we really haven't seen from uh, MPL, and that is a new Wings album that isn't just a reissue of an old one. Okay, there was that Wings Over Europe thing, but that was a limited thing, and that isn't available on streaming, but yeah. What we have here is a brand new Wings product, and it is called Wingspan Hits and History. Thank you. 
I want you back. Hey, diddle, I want you back. Diddle, I want you back. Hey, diddle, I want you back. Diddle, I want you back. and History is a greatest hits album compiled by Paul McCartney. Who else? It basically features his material spanning his solo career with McCartney in 1970 to 1984's Give My Regards to Broads. Yeah, folks, this is a weird one. Uh, this is the Wings compilation album that also includes stuff that Patently isn't wings, you know, McCartney 2 through Pipes of Peace, etc. It's certainly a black sheep, but it's also a very interesting whole lot to talk about. <laughs> it's separated into two distinct sets, which are the hits, and that disc features the commercially successful material, whilst history showcases lesser known songs from the same period. The British and American editions of the album vary slightly, as we saw with uh, All the Best, one of the last like solo compilation albums, with the UK edition containing the studio version of Coming Up, uh, and the US edition containing Coming Up Live at Glasgow. Of course, that, that one was more popular there. The Japanese version of the album also includes Eat at Home, which had been issued as a single in Japan. The album was released on the 7th of May 2001 and was another instant commercial success. In the United States, it went straight to number two on the Billboard 200 with sales of 221,000 copies in the first week of release. The album charted there for 14 weeks, selling approximately 970,000 units as of 2005. It's been certified double platinum uh, in America it reached gold status here in the UK, where it got to number five, uh, as well as Australia, where it reached number 14, and New Zealand, where it reached number 13. In conjunction with the release of the album, there was also a companion documentary, which is also titled Wingspan, with premieres on the 11th of May 2001 for the US and 20th of May here in the UK, as well as Australia. Admittedly, 
It's a little lightweight, but a very well-intentioned retelling of the classic McCartney Wings narrative, all boiled down into a single documentary, with the main issue being that it's only Paul's retelling. You know, it doesn't feature any of the other members of Wings at all, which is a massive missed opportunity. And we still can get a good Wings documentary you know, with surviving members of the band if we do it now. Come on, people. We, we should totally get this funded, actually. We, we really should. Of course, I'm not only going to do a Wingspan uh, episode, but I'm also going to do a Wingspan documentary episode. I'd love, to, I'd love to talk about that film with someone. There's, there's, there's so much to pick apart, especially just in how much of a, a homespun affair it is. It's directed by Mary McCartney's then-husband, Alastair Donald. Uh, it was produced by Mary McCartney, who also interviews Paul in the film. And if Wings was meant to be this homemade band and you know McCartney one was the homemade experience and he did it on McCartney 2 you know it 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 all feels very thematic and connected in that sense whether it's the greatest documentary ever is certainly up for debate but what's cool about it is that I actually remember this coming out as a kid I actually remember this one along with that band on the run documentary that also appeared on ITV as well but yeah this is certainly the period where I'm starting to become aware of music and the Beatles, even if on the most tertiary basis. Now, in doing my research, the original four vinyl set was advertised back then as being £15. Are you, are you kidding me? Oh, my God. Let's just quickly log on to eBay. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's over £80 to £130. Quite the nice return, if you ask me, especially if you bought a couple of copies Okay, everyone, that is everything that happened between the release of Flaming Pie and Driving Rain. Now what we've got to do is talk about Driving Rain. <laughs> you know, we actually get to talk about the the album itself, the making of the album, and that that is where we are now. We're going to cover all the behind-the-scenes details, uh, the who's who of how this album got made and why it sounds the way it does... Uh, we're going to be discussing the producer, the band, the recording sessions. And also in this section now, we also take the time to go into all of the details of how the song came to be as well, like Paul's writing process and any anecdotes he has about them. Right. Let's start off with the man who helped put the whole album together. Yes, the producer. And he is a new face around these parts. His name is David Kahn, and to start off this segment, I want to play you a song that I just really wanted to play. Uh, you know, I, I just wanted an excuse, because otherwise this was never going to appear until a bonus episode. And that is David Kahn's own remix of the second song and first single for the album. It's very different to the one that is on the final album. Uh, it really could be the figure of eight of Driving Rain, as it were, in that the single version sounds better than the album one, and it sounds a little like this. And when the time comes round, we will be duty-bound to tell the truth of what we've seen 
And what we haven't found Will not be going down Despite too easy right to see From a lover to a friend Take your own advice Let me love again Now that you turned out to be As far as I'm concerned, that is the definitive mix of that song. Don't get me wrong, I like the album mix and I have a lot to say about it in the next episode and the next episode, but that was even better and it's all down to Khan's style. Khan is and was a breath of fresh air that I won't say was needed but was certainly welcomed. I mean, Flaming Pie was so poor and had such a strong, unique sound that it makes sense to have something a little bit different and atypical to add to Paul's sound here. And that's exactly what you get from this album. And the feeling that we have a different sound is amplified by all of the you know surrounding context of the album. But it's not as grave as that and as impactful as that. It's just that there's a slight fun twist on it and it, and it works out for the better. You know, it makes total sense that the post-Linda and the, the newly Heather-based album would have a different sound, and it does. Now, something that Paul has always worried about is sounding contemporary, and he really surprisingly is on this album. As you might expect, the warm, homespun campfire feel of Flaming Pie that has a very specific nostalgic feel to it is instead replaced by an album that's a little darker, a little more intense and atmospheric. Guitar tones are more jagged and aggressive. The bass is far more dirge-like and fuzzy, as is the overall sound in general. It has frequent tangents into very airy, ethereal landscapes also. Uh, Actually, in regards to the first thing I was reminded of with this album was the work of... Mr. Julian Mendelssohn on 1993's Off the Ground, as Driving Rain 2 has these moments where it, it too sounds like it's it, it's coming from the next room or you're listening to it whilst asleep in a dream or something like that. You know, it's quite hard to describe, but it's a very specific atmosphere, and those are the only two in McCartney's collection so far that really do that for me. Anyway, let's wind the clock back a sec and begin with Khan's own story and double-check his pedigree. Before working with McCartney, he had already been producing records since 76, cutting his teeth on acts like Pearl Harbor and the Explosions, Red Rockers, Humans, Romeo Void, Rank and File, and Spooky, all household names that are still relevant today, clearly. 
However, when you move into the 1980s, you start to see more recognisable names like Stevie Ray Vaughan, Fishbone, Deacon Blue, Human Radio and Love Hate. His biggest success in this period, though, was his continued work with the pop rock band The Bangles, for whom he cut the singles Manic Monday, that got to number two like everywhere in the world, Walk Like an Egyptian, which was the number one song for the year 1986 on the Billboard charts, as well as number one in Austria, Belgium, Canada, the Netherlands, South Africa, Spain, number two in Ireland and number three in the UK. And Eternal Flame, which went to number one in Australia, Belgium, Ireland, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Sweden, the UK and the US, whilst also being the number one song for Europe for that year. Yeah, uh, he did some pretty good work with that band. In the early 90s, he continued to work with much of the same acts he had before, as well as producing Susanna Hoff of the Bangles' uh, solo career, and new acts like Brenda Khan, uh, Collision, and Taishan, or Tashan. Then, as the decade moved on, along with the new sound, came new acts that I kind of have heard of, like Imogen Heap, Tony Bennett, Katie Lang, and Sugar Ray. And then you have... The other acts like Candy Butchers, Soul Coughing, Sublime, Greg Gehring, Shootsy Groove and Lisa Hall. Again, all household names that are still relevant today. Then we come to the era of Driving Rain. Paul has a bunch of songs ready to go and he knows he's gearing up for another album. But why not self-produce? Well, while it's not directly stated, it is safe to assume that, especially considering how short the sessions will be, that Paul wasn't up for spending the same amount of time on his next album as he normally would have. I'm not saying at all that he didn't want to do the work. Of course, he wants to do the work. That'd be silly. But it would make sense that at this particular time in his life that he wouldn't want to do the whole self-production thing. So, yeah, it's logical that he would have got someone else to help pick up the slack. Plus, a new album for the new millennium and the first post-Linda Death album. Again, logical to have someone else come in and help shake up slash jazz up your sound. The move makes sense. In terms of why David Kahn specifically, the answer is far staler and corporate than I would have liked. I was thinking maybe, you know, McCartney had his own Kahn for a while or that they were friends. Or maybe Kahn was a huge Beatles fan or solo McCartney fan and pushed for the job. But, as Paul reveals here, it was a far more standard business transaction than anything based on emotion, shared history, or fandom trivia. He says, It started with a guy in my New York office, Bill Porcelli, saying, Who's going to produce your next album? Can I give you some suggestions? He gave me a bunch of suggestions of possible producers. They were all very good, very high-level people. And out of them all, David Kahn was the one I liked best. I liked his approach. He's very musical, but modern. I met him, liked him, he's very quiet, he's very on the ball, and in talking, it became clear that he wanted to do what I wanted to do. It was very similar. So yeah, rather than anything remotely interesting, some intern at MPL brought Paul this list of names from the higher-ups as potential producers on the album, and Paul simply picked the one he liked the best. Now, whilst I'm sure that these banal arrangements are set up in this way all the time in the industry, it does still seem a little unimaginative for Paul to just inspect a list of pre-approved collaborators, but oh well. We also have a brief perspective from David Kahn himself in a 2001 online interview with a random-ass website called joshgill.wordpress.com. Kahn was asked, 
how did you end up working for McCartney? He called me up after hearing some music I'd worked on. I thought he liked that I was producing Tony Bennett and Fishbone at the time. Okay, well, that's at least a little more revealing. Um, You know, maybe Paul liked Tony Bennett because that's more of a big name, someone that Paul would be familiar with and, you know, admire as well. And then maybe Fishbone's more of that kind of modern thing that Paul was going for as well. Also, just a little uh, snippet from this interview, he was also asked, what have been some of your favourite songs that you've worked on with Paul? And David answered, Nod Your Head is a favourite, and End of the End, From a Lover to a Friend, and Rinse the Raindrops. So two of his favourite songs are from this album that he's done with Paul, and two from the next one, so I'll be certainly looking out for them in the future. Oh yeah, sorry, is that a little spoiler? Yeah, sorry folks, sorry I didn't alert anyone who wasn't aware at this point but no this isn't the last time we're going to see David Kahn he is going to indeed return for memory almost full and in my head I assumed that it went um, this album Driving Rain to Memory Almost Full and then to Chaos and Creation in the backyard but no Paul goes and works with Nigel Godrich for that album and then comes back to work with David Kahn. So, you know, David Kahn is a repeat collaborator and a trusted modern ear for Paul, you know, and and an advisor in that sense. And uh, it's interesting, though, that both of David Kahn's albums are uh, certainly more in that love it or hate it kind of camp. Um, Again, Memory Almost Fall is an album that I'm... Well, it's, it's the last one I'm really dreading now, really. I've dabbled in it a little bit, not been too impressed so far but of course that's probably how I felt with Driving Rain at the start as well and then after 20 or 30 listens you know you do fall in love with these albums but yeah just finishing up with David Carr now after their extensive work together he went on to produce The Strokes with Regina Spector, Sean Lennon, Kelly Clarkson, Taking Back Sunday, James McCartney, Lana Del Rey and Instant Karma Uh, the Amnesty International Campaign to Save Darfur uh, charity compilation album, which is a John Lennon compilation album, of course, for Darfur, which was released in 2007. So, yeah, lots of further Beatle or Beatle-esque outer Beatle collaborations, you know. Very cool guy. Really glad to have him on this album. We're going to talk about him a lot over the next two episodes. We're going to be talking about production a lot with the album reviews. Also, when compiling these notes, I kept coming across the name Mo Jackson as another possible associate or uncredited producer on Driving Rain. It seems that both Khan and Jackson were both responsible for putting together the team uh, of like musicians, with Khan doing the album alone. If anyone knows who this uh, Mo Jackson is, again, please hit me up. But yeah, that is the producer done. And now that we know the man behind the mixing desk, it's time to move on to the people that Paul would be sharing the studio space with. And maybe even more. Yes, this is an exciting period in McCartney history because, you know, despite the fact that this is an era so often swept under the rugs, the makings of the modern day Paul McCartney live experience starts right fucking here. This is day zero, folks. This is modern McCartney live touring band beta version 0.5 we're not quite there yet but this album for all of its 
strengths and flaws, whatever you want to say, it truly is the herald of the true modern McCartney era. And, you know, swiftly, going to see why. Just as an interesting tidbit of information, though, in stark contrast to the close bonds, long histories and familiar, familial nature of the people that he worked with or played with on Flaming Pie, for Driving Rain, Paul selected musicians whom he had never played with before and, even more strangely, never even met. I'm guessing that this is part of the whole keeping it fresh and new objective that they had with this album, as well as adding a bit of nervous energy and, of course, spontaneity into the mix. But I can't help think that as with so many parts of this story, there's also an element of not wanting to have worked with anyone who could remotely remind him of Linda. No, wait, 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 but don't get sad, don't get contemplative or anything like that. Let's keep it nice and light. Starting off with our first member of the band on the drums, the tambourine, uh, Roland electronic percussion, Ludwig drums, DW drums, electronic drums, backing vocals, African drum samples and accordion, we have... Abe Laboreal Jr. Yes, the not-so-little drummer boy is here on this show at last. Of course, we've spoken about him on lots of live <laughs> commentary and modern Paul stuff. But yeah, this is his introduction to the narrative. He's the iconic gentle giant drummer for the Paul McCartney touring band. And he is low-key a massive fan favourite. Son of bassist and... Uh, recording artist in his own right, Abe Laboreal, our own Honest Abe Laboreal Jr., started out in the early 90s with household names like Justo Almario, or Almario, Letters in Cleo, Leo Gandelman, The Raging Honkies, and Matt Goss. As the years went on, he does get a little more notoriety with acts like Steve Vai, Duran Duran, Katie Lang, Hanson, Ricky Martin and appearing on an Elton John soundtrack for the animated El Dorado movie. But he really doesn't have a discography full of names that jump out to me. You know, he, there are just loads of names in there, like Mylene Farmer, Mud Hens, Crystal Lewis, Shelby Starner, The Manhattan Transfer, and Fishbone. Ah, oh, Fishbone, yep. Those of you who may have discerned how... Abe knew David Kahn and to get in on these sessions. Don't be so surprised, everyone. Of course, in any industry, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. And it seems that Abe Laboreal Junith, through his connection with Fishbone and perhaps other artists that I've just listed there, he was in with David Kahn. So he was in with Paul. <laughs> also, if any of those artists I previously mentioned are a big deal, I do apologise, but it was off my radar. Do let me know at at gmail.com in the complaints, of course. Though Abe's position was not solely based on nepotism, he was known on the scene. He had gotten around not only as a session musician, but also as a touring one. He toured with Steve Vai as well as Sting. And so when it's time to get a new band together for Paul... You know, Abe just seems to have been a known entity regardless, but the, the fact that he knew David Kahn couldn't have hurt. Uh, Abe describes the occasion in the um, 2018 Freshen Up Tour booklet, saying, Producer David Kahn hired me for the Driving Rain record. Within five minutes of shaking Paul's hand, we were jamming, and we've been jamming ever since. And yeah, whilst the meeting of Abe and Paul, rather like the meeting of David Kahn and Paul, has been a little too corporately synthesised and manipulated. 
it, it really doesn't matter in the end because Abe kicks ass on the album. They clearly hit it off together. And that's a relationship that's been going strong for 20 plus years now. You know, there's definitely history and backstory and love there now. So it was all worth it. Though, just before we press on, there is one little nugget of info that did catch my eye that I do not want to pass on. Basically, it does seem that Abe has released an album around 96, 97 called Burning Grooves. Now, there is nowhere where I can find a copy of this album to listen to, whether online or in physical media, which is a real shame, not only because it's an album of one of Paul's major players that might be fun to collect, but also for the fact that, according to Discogs, it's an album of 99 short tracks, presumably just a load of drum beats for future DJs and samplers to use for their heart's content. And whilst that might not sound uh, fascinating to you, uh, you know, it might seem quite nightmarish, actually. For me, that just seems so fucking cool. So uh, if anyone can find me a copy, hit me up at paulmcconneypod at gmail.com again. Yeah, that sounds so badass. Then, on guitar, pedal steel guitar, acoustic guitar, 12-string electric guitar, vox bass guitar, backing vocals, percussion, and tempura, we have one Rusty Anderson. Yes, this is another incredibly familiar name for the majority of you out there, I am sure, as our Rusty is still, again, to this day, the lead guitarist for the Paul McCartney touring band. Rusty started out as a session guitarist in the 80s with such household names as... Max Gronenthal, Metal MC, Bardieu, Stacey Q, and The Graces. As he moved through the years, though, he would work with actual household names like The Bangles, Belinda Carlisle, Kim Wilde, Patti Smith, Neil Diamond, Enrique Iglesias, and Dido. Then, as I was scrolling through Discogs, I recognised the first song that I'd ever heard that featured Rusty, and it was not a Paul McCartney one, but it is one that I have known my entire life. And it's one that I'm sure all of you know as well. And it just goes a little something like this. She's into superstitions, black cats and voodoo dolls. I feel a premonition, that girl's gonna make me fall. New sensations, new kicks in the candlelight She's got new addictions for every day and night She'll make you take your clothes off and go dancing in the rain She'll make you live a crazy life or she'll take away your pain Like a bullet to your brain Upside, inside out She's living the vida loca She'll push and Yes, folks, Rusty Anderson is the guitarist on Ricky Martin's Livin' La Vida Loca, one of the biggest singles of 1999 and of all time, having topped the charts in over 20 countries. You know, that song had our boy Rusty doing the old dirty guitar lick. How cool is that? But 
that is not all. Right around the corner, he had another hit song, even if it was only a hit song here in the UK. And it sounds something like this. tune but if you play that in any pub here in the UK and the majority of people would still be able to do that chorus with gusto but yeah that was indeed around 2000 and by 2001 boom he was on driving rain so how did he get on driving rain well Rusty also mentioned it in the freshen up booklet in 2018 saying I must credit David Kahn the producer for inviting me to play on the album ever since then we've been rocking man so yeah, again, very formal, pretty much how 99% of these gigs are set up, and overall, not a very good story. Still, like Abe, he'd certainly proved himself over the years on numerous projects, and with two recent hits under his belt, it certainly wouldn't have damaged his credibility in terms of working with Paul now, would it? Rusty is all over Driving Rain, and his presence is certainly felt from the get-go. There is a definitely a unique guitar sound on this, and it's in stark contrast to those warm, earthy, uh, nostalgic guitar tones and guitar playing style that we had on Flaming Pie. This is, again, like Khan himself, much more modern, a little more jagged and dark, but also still very emotive and expressive. That's Rusty. And like Abe, he's been just as loyal and been by Paul's side ever since this moment. Yeah. We all love Rusty, who doesn't love him? But unfortunately, there's one name that this studio album is missing. And since that Paul himself is able to play multiple instruments, you know, on a single song even, there's no real need for another guitarist, bassist, backing vocalist. And so the big name missing from this list is indeed Brian Ray. Ray, who is the multi-instrumentalist, who allows Paul to change instruments mid-set, would not enter the picture until 2002 during the Super Bowl pre-game performance of Freedom. The rest, as they say, is history, but more on Brian in the Chaos and Creation in the Backyard episode when we cover the Back in the US tour. Then, rounding out the main band, we have on Wurlitzer, electric piano, piano, Hammond organ, Fender Rhodes, and backing vocals, we have one Gabe Dixon. Now, don't worry, if you haven't heard his name before, 
His appearance in the McCartney story is about as long as someone like Jeff Britton, albeit a little bit longer. You know, he's there for a single period of sessions and then moves on. So Gabe, along with his two college roommates back in the day, uh, bassist Winston Harrison and drummer Jano Ricks, formed the band The Gabe Dixon Band. They spent several years specialising in jazz-inflected, heavily improvised excursions, showcasing the virtuosity of the players. You know, supposedly, I haven't checked it out for myself. Though Dixon's elevated chops did lead to other high-profile moonlighting opportunities. Uh, he performed with Alison Krauss on the keyboards, the band OAR, or OR, and others. Well, that's what Gabe's wiki entry says. Now, if you've been paying attention at all, this is the part where I then reveal that the artist previously worked with David Kahn, and yes, that is literally what happens um, when asked him uh, himself about how he got an opportunity to work with Paul. Gabe said uh, the following from an interview uh, with Crosswalk in 2008. He said, Our producer happened to be producing Paul's album Driving Rain in the same studio the following month. He heard me record an organ pass in the studio and came back in and was like, man, you're really good. Want to play on the next Paul McCartney album? And I was like, what do you think? So that's how it started. And I got to spend six weeks recording with him, plus performing with him at the concert for New York City following 9-11. He's a very warm, caring and funny individual. And not to sound weird, but he's just one of those people who almost seems to glow whenever you're around him. One of the main regrets I have of not going on tour with him was because he was such a nice guy to be around. I wish I could have hung around him more. So yeah, the producer of the 2002 Gabe Dixon band album was none other than David Kahn, proving once again that not only do you have to be a talented musician, but you also have to know the right people and be in the right place at the right time. Now, considering the fact that the last two artists we have spoken about went on to be in the Paul McCartney touring band to this very day, it does seem quite odd that this fella did not go down the same path. When asked why he turned down such an opportunity, he said, It was not an easy decision, but after the concert for New York City, my band's record was about to come out, and there were a ton of dates booked. All along, I thought that it was a really great experience to record with Paul, but I never intended to do anything beyond that. So, I was faced with this decision where I felt inside like I needed to decide what to do with life, and I asked myself things like, what brings me alive inside and what am I called to do? I prayed a lot for the decision for sure. Prayer is a big part of my life today and always has been. I prayed about it a great deal and tried to listen for an answer. So when I finally made the, the decision, I knew it was the right one. I had guidance, realising that I was given gifts as a singer and songwriter, as well as an opportunity with a major record label to follow my own bliss. I mean... In all fairness, that's a very strong answer. It's not like it was something uh, as flippant or glib as how he came into being into the band in the first place. You know, I do appreciate the fact that he took the time to think about it properly. You know, he, he definitely weighed the pros and cons, but good on him for sticking to his guns and doing what he thought was right. I mean, yes, there's a lifetime of riches and fame and splendour that he certainly turned down. Oh, wait, I think I've kind of lost my train of thought here. No, I, w I would have just joined Paul McCartney's touring band. Gabe, what were you doing, man? Come on. Though, in all fairness, the fact that Gabe didn't go on to be part of the, the touring band meant that we got to keep Wixie as our primary keyboard player. 
and personally, I wouldn't have that any other way. Not going to lie, though, on this album, uh, it, it doesn't feel like there's that much of a presence of another keys or piano player. Uh, you know, if you hadn't have told me that there was another player on this album, I wouldn't have guessed. I would have just assumed it was Paul, which basically means that the inclusion of Gabe Dixon in this lineup of the band is more just a fun curio than anything that really affected the McCartney sound, at least as far as I'm concerned. Moving on to some of the more minor players on this album now. Uh, well, actually, first of all, we have a familiar name on the Roland organ, electric guitar, synths, orchestral samples, Wurlitzer, and sample strings. It's the producer himself, David Kahn. Yes, in classic McCartney fashion, Kahn is not content with simply sitting behind the mixing desk and has ensured that his presence is all over the literal sounds of the album, not just in the way they are presented. Uh, he does organ on Lonely Road, piano on Spinning on an Axis, the electric guitar is on She's Given Up Talking, he does synths on the title track Magic and Riding Into Jaipur, the orchestral samples are on I Do, the string samples are on both Heather and Your Loving Flame. Yes, it's clear that not only did Paul want a producer to come in and do some of the producing work for him, but hey, if this guy's willing to do some of the musical work as well, even better. Obviously, this lends to the idea that this was recorded in a very short space of time, and having other people to do that for you certainly helps. Then, returning on electric guitar, as well as some percussion, we have young James McCartney, a.k.a. the son of Paul McCartney. Though, the most mind-boggling thing about his presence on this album, and I know that this is something I neglected to bring up uh, with both of my future guests when we were talking about it, but James actually co-wrote the songs Spinning on an Axis and Back in the Sunshine Again with his father Paul. Yet, I, folks, I know, I only just found out myself, and it's absolutely fucking mental. I feel like I totally have to reapproach both of those songs, uh, knowing that James helped co-write them. It's a real step up for the young aspiring musician. Like, he played lead on Heaven on a Sunday on the last album, and now he's co-writing two fucking songs? You know, those are two very good songs on this album. He can certainly feel proud to have contributed to them. Uh, I'm not sure what his guitar part is, whether it's the or the possibly the solo. You know, it feels quite Heaven on a Sunday-esque. You know, great, great achievement, James. Or at least that's kind of what I thought, because James is 23 by this point, And whilst it's cool that he's making an appearance here, it's hard not to think of the fact that his dad had released four albums by this point with a fifth swiftly on the way. Oh, and they're also amongst the best albums of all time. And yeah, I know it's always dangerous to compare someone to anyone, let alone their parents, but... Well, I think you all know what I'm getting at here. Then, on the last-minute edition track, Freedom, we have the last-minute edition of Eric Clapton. Yes, Eric White Album Clapton teams up with Paul once again for the concert for New York, delivering a unique guitar solo... And I assume that this was just, you know, from a favour to a friend, and that was a very casual arrangement, both literally and figuratively. I can't actually find any quotes from Clapton about the song, and I only assume that that's because it has faded into obscurity in his own mind by now. But, you know, it's still cool that Clapton is here with Paul, and they will actually go on to appear together on stage in other tragic circumstances very soon, which we'll also be covering on this podcast. 
Oh, and just finally, we come to the other players that do indeed appear on this album, but don't happen to be household names. Uh, but let's still give them a little shout out. Doing the violin on Heather, we have Ralph Morrison. Then we have the string quartet used for Your Loving Flame, which is made up of David Campbell and Matt Foons on viola, Joel Durian on violin, and Larry Corbett on the cello. The album was edited digitally, whatever that means, by Stuart Whitmore. And then the engineers were Mark Durnley as first engineer. As engineer second assistant, we have Kevin Mills. Uh, we have Jeff Emmerich doing some additional engineering on tracks 7 and 11, as well as Paul Hicks on tracks 7 and 11. And then we have the engineer assistant, Jamie Sikora. That's everyone on this album. Let's press on to, you know, how it was made. The real meat and potatoes of any album backstory, you know, the, the recording sessions themselves. We're going to go through day by day, seeing what was recorded, when, and anything that happened in the studio. Also, ever since Flaming Pie, I've also wanted to include the backstories of the songs in this portion of the show, just in case it doesn't come up in the discussion in parts three or four. So, you know, we're going to learn about the songs themselves too. Though, what I will say about these sessions is that they are certainly a breath of fresh air, with Paul actually doing something different. One, two, three, four, five. Let's go for a drive. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Let's go there and back again. Baby, baby. You come walking through my door. Like the
course, we must begin by asking, why now? Why was it in 2001 that Paul decided to put out the new album? It's not like he hasn't been doing other stuff since the death of Linda, but you kind of have to wonder whether maybe he was intentionally delaying doing a proper solo album by embarking on as many non-solo album-based projects as possible. You know, maybe he couldn't face doing an album without her. Maybe he wanted to avoid addressing her in song. Or maybe he just wasn't up for that level of physical exertion. You know, a lot of the other projects around this time would have been relatively easy for Paul, at least when compared to a regular album. But there does come a point when you run out of projects to embark upon to delay doing the next album. And it's almost like this album came out when it did because he finally had a gap in his schedule that would allow him to actually make one. Anyway, I've alluded to the idea that this album was recorded quite quickly. And yeah, that is the truth. We've had a lot of albums on this show that have taken absolutely ages to write, produce and mix. But that's not the case with Driving Rain. Following the example set by Run Devil Run's brisk production schedule, Driving Rain, bar from two songs, one of them being Freedom, was cut with David Kahn over just two weeks. Yeah, just 14 days, which for mid-modern McCartney is an insanely quick turnaround. Maybe some of you out there are already thinking, two weeks? <laughs> yeah, I can tell. But for me, as spoiler alert, someone who rather enjoys the album, it's A, not that obvious. Again, if you hadn't have told me that this was recorded in two weeks, there isn't an orgy of evidence to indicate that. And so finding out that it did take such a short amount of time to record only makes the whole thing even more impressive than it already is. And again, bringing it back to Linda, you know, not only does he have a producer and a new band helping him carry that weight, and so it is clear that even if he is going to be in the studio doing this, he doesn't want to drag it out. Heck, maybe even completely out of character, Paul might have been genuinely tired here. Anyway, rather fortunately for this show, rather than me having to use a whole bunch of sources to cobble together the feeling of what the sessions were like on the whole, Mr McCartney himself actually detailed the entire outline of what the work practices were like. What I'm about to read to you now, as well as a lot of the individual facts about these songs... Uh, are taken directly from what's called The Driving Rain Interview, which was published on paulmccartney.com in November of 2001. And he starts off with this piece. Because I didn't know David Kahn, I didn't want to get into any big, heavy, breathing relationships, committing to four months on an album. So I thought I'd just do two weeks with him to see how it worked out. He normally records at the old A&M Studios in Los Angeles, the Henson Studios. We both had some time free in February, so I came out to see if we could do anything. Linked to this is, during some of the interviews I'd done around Run Devil Run, I'd been talking about the old ways we used to record with the Beatles around the same time of the early albums. During those interviews, it reminded me that John and I would come to the studio on Monday morning with a song and show it to the guys. I suddenly realised that George Ringo, George Martin and our engineer Jeff Emmerich all didn't know what song we were going to do until John and I brought it in. I thought, that's kind of amazing that... George and Ringo didn't even know what we were going to be doing until that morning. But it was a great way to work. It's my favourite way of how we worked in The Beatles, and I felt like I should do that again now. I did it on Run Devil Run. The band I had for that album said to me we could learn the songs that we were going to do, like a week before in the studio, and I said, no, no, no homework. 
So we did the same way with the new album, following the same technique. We came in on Monday morning, I'd show them a song, and we'd start doing it. We didn't know what was going to happen, and it was all a little bit unknown for us. Right, the quote isn't over yet, folks, but there's already a lot to unpack here already, so we're going to take a quick recess. <laughs> I actually can't believe that it's taken Paul this long to record in the studio in this way. I mean, the closest example you might have would be something like uh, the Wildlife album. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of rehearsal for that. But, you know, some of the, you know, the, one of the songs, for example, they all would have known already. Paul and Linda were probably aware of a lot of those songs. Denny Sywell had probably heard a lot of them during the Ram era as well. So it's not really the same thing. And that's what, you know, that's what's going to lead to this real sense of uh, spontaneity on this album. Again, it's one of the things that if you hadn't told me, I wouldn't have noticed it. But now that you have told me, I can't perceive it in any other way. And of course, yeah, Paul has to make it a comparison about the Beatles as well. He couldn't make it a comparison to Early Wings because no one would give a shit. Uh, <laughs> he knows how to advertise this album. Though, you know, I still like the idea that he's getting back, as it were. You know, Driving Rain is not the most resplendent or showy Macca album. It's got very few string or orchestral overdubs, and is mostly just simple song structures. But on the flip side, you do get a lot of passion and energy, as well as a focus on interesting melodies that Paul will know will you know, hook in the rest of the band. So what you're left with, as far as I'm concerned, is an album that, despite having an incredibly modern level of production, does have that very old-school, classic McCartney album feel? No, really, it does. Again, like the short sessions themselves, the most important part of this, and perhaps what I find most interesting, is the idea of why he returned to this, to this recording style now, and not with, say, Tug of War or Press to Play. Again, again, it's hard not to assume that Paul might be doing this due to the loss of Linda. You know, when he lost the Beatles, Wings had to go back to the beginning and tour in universities again, and now with the loss of Linda, he's having to go back to the way he used to record albums before he ever met her, because everything after is, in fact, coloured with her. Maybe it's less about the results that, that it produces and more about how it's Paul's default way to bond with other artists and to make an album. I'm not saying he can't make albums in other ways or bond with people in other ways. It's obvious that he can. But maybe during times of strife and trauma or when he doesn't want to overexert himself, he just reverts to making an album the way the Beatles did, as a bit of comfort food. Anyway, Paul continues. The band on this album is a new band that I'd never worked with before, never even met before. It was unknown too for David, and consequently, it started to be a little different than what we would have done before. All of us were having to think on our feet, and that process led to something different from what we normally do. So for me... That's what I mean by this album not necessarily being what you'd expect from me, because it's, it's not even what I was expecting. But by going into that recording freely, not dictating, things just evolved. For instance, the song I Do was originally written down low, me singing like a little low soul thing. But during the session I thought, I'll try and sing it higher, and it makes for one of the best bits in the song. It's like I'm trying to catch my breath, because I'm having to go up an octave for this big vocal change. And by doing that, this exciting little thing happened to the song. 
So this process of doing it the rubber soul way was making me sing a bit differently and making me think a bit differently. I was letting David come up with his ideas and he was almost DJing on some of the mixes. We'd work until early evening, six or seven, and then we'd leave him to play around with it all. Most of the time, I loved what he did. So that also took things in a little exciting direction that none of us expected. So yeah, it's confirmed. Just because Paul only has two weeks to record an album, it doesn't mean that it's going to be just two weeks worth of hours. No, Paul gets in a month's worth of effort and fits it all in. I mean, it's still a period 14 times longer than Please Please Me, but he's also twice as old, so I'll give him a pass, I guess. You know, he might not be like youth, recording up until 6 or 7 in the morning, you know, just 6 or 7 in the evening, but still... It's still rather impressive, I've got to say, you know, especially against the image of Paul in this period. You know, there's no come in early, leave early here. This is you leave when everything's done. Also, it's interesting to see how these late hours are also indicative of how Paul is now recording an album at a time when he doesn't have a wife and young family at home to get back to. Another aspect of these sessions that bears highlighting is the aspect of spontaneity Yes, rather against type, despite the fact that all the songs were written and perhaps written in a certain way. It's important to know that Paul did things differently in the studio. We know he's no stranger to collaboration, but rather than say a specific big name collaborator here, it's like that the whole band is one big collaborator in this short time and confined space. When speaking about this spontaneity, Paul said... People say, how do you get your creativity? And I think the answer is that you just have to be open to stuff. It's like a photographer. Linda could see a great photograph just because the light was right or it was an unusual object or somebody's face was relaxed. Jimi Hendrix yawning? She'd snap it, whereas someone else might wait for him to stop yawning. For me, it's the same thing. I'm always on the lookout for just interesting stuff, either visually or musically or lyrically. The funny thing is about the song Driving Rain is that the alarm system in the house we were renting in Los Angeles was always on. There was the little electrical LED box on the wall, and it always said, something's open. I always thought, what the fuck good is that? And no matter if you shut every window and door in the whole bloody place, this alarm always said, something's open. Not very reassuring. But in the end, I just thought, fuck it. And I took the words into the song, and I thought, right, something's open, it's my heart. And I just used it as the opening line of Driving Rain. So... In that case, the creativity came from this junk of an alarm system. Also, 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 it's important to reinforce the fact that these sessions could be as short as they were and could be so experimental is because Paul had been more or less writing since Flaming Pie ended and had more than enough material to fill an album. Well, actually, more than, because Driving Rain is already even longer than the massive Flaming Pie. And also like the last album, the reason he was able to write so much is because he has so much time off. Though, unlike the large amounts of holidays he was taking in the mid-90s and the late 90s, for example, whilst Linda was still alive, possibly for more relaxation purposes, to get away from things, to give Linda some peace, this time he's in the middle of a high-life whirlwind romance and so had a lot of holidays as well. I realised that to be a songwriter, to do my kind of work, you've got to be doing nothing. You've got to have a lot of time to yourself, which in most people's lingo is doing nothing. You're not working, you're not working out, you're just sort of sitting around, which is great. Boy, what a great job definition. 
Mine only requires a guitar and doing nothing. And I find that when I'm doing nothing, my favourite way of doing nothing is to make some music out of it. But you have to have some space for stuff to come into your brain. If you're sitting in the office all day thinking about business things, it's not as conducive as having some time to yourself. As I always say, it's playtime. You play music. You don't work music. Okay, I know some of you can read into that, that Paul isn't this obsessive, compulsive, evergreen songwriter who constantly annoys everyone around him with his brilliance. But the most important part that I took away from that was that fundamentally, this has to be fun for it to both be a quality work and worthwhile for Paul to do in the first place. You know, if he doesn't get the same buzz as writing in Aunt Mimi's lounge or on his old dad's piano or in Rishi Kesh or Mullikintyre or Lagos, then it doesn't get him fired up in the same way. Music has to be an escape from reality for him. I guess the only way a multi-millionaire can do that is to literally get away from it all and cut loose. Ironically, he's so busy being a songwriter that he seemingly has to do nothing to be able to write songs. Again, it's likely an oversimplification. And I bet Paul is a, a bit like those dorks at school who say they didn't revise for a test but did and that he can write whenever and wherever. But it's interesting how many songs from this period, and the last album actually, that are not written or recorded in jolly old England. Also, also, as always, I tried to look for bonus or cold cut type content from every recording session, and Driving Rain is no different. Now, whilst tracks like Vanilla Sky would certainly make it onto the Driving Rain unofficial archive collection, that one doesn't quite count, as it wasn't part of these sessions. It was a separate thing done with David Kahn for the film. But apart from that, I actually struggled to find anything that didn't make its way onto the final album. Apart from a little snippet of an interview with David Kahn. And he was asked, You said on the Dot Music side interview that you produced 22 tracks for Driving Rain, being 15 included on the album. How about The Leftovers? Can you talk about the seven outtakes? I'm aware that Vanilla Sky, which I've already listened to, is one of them. Can you reveal the other B-side names and how they sound like a bit? Vanilla Sky was recorded for the movie during that time, so it's not really an outtake. The songs that didn't get onto the record are as varied in style as on the album. It was just too many songs to put on a single release. I'm sure they'll show up on albums someday. There are ballads and a bluegrass sort of song and more. A lot to look forward to. And that, folks, is exactly what I was hoping for. Some proper McCartney 3-esque rumours. You know, oh, there was a whole load of songs that never made the cut. And boom, there it is in black and white. But it seems that as we move through and towards the digital age, it's getting harder and harder for these bootleggers to get access to this stuff. I imagine Paul's circle is even tighter and security is even higher. You know, there's just... No one slipping out with a spare tape anymore, is there? And it's a shame, really, you know, with results that will become more apparent in future Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episodes. You know, the the more recent we get, the less content there is. Though, at least the interviewer was cheeky and intrepid enough to try his look again and push Khan on at least one of the Cold Cuts, asking, Can you tell me a little bit more about one of the leftovers you mentioned before? like that bluegrass-type track that ended up off the album. That's a question that will undoubtedly intrigue most of the fans, by the way. The song is called Washington. 
I only mention it because Paul mentioned it somewhere, so I feel okay telling you about it. It's a sort of train song, and it has a very train track feel. A very cool love song. So yeah, we do know something about at least one of the hidden or lost McCartney songs of this era, which is a marvel in itself, because we either know everything or nothing about Paul's music. I know I certainly haven't heard of this song, but if any of you have, please get in contact for, as I'm sure it is the same with you, the prospect of any new Paul McCartney music is utterly irresistible. Anyway, folks, now that we know who we're dealing with, what we're dealing with, and you know when we're dealing with, let's just launch right into the recording sessions themselves. Like I say, we're going to go through chronologically and talk about a bit of the backstory of each track. All very simple. And we're going to begin with, fittingly, the first day of recording, which was on Friday the 16th of February 2001. And Paul certainly decided to kick things off with a bang, as the songs recorded that day were Lonely Road, About You and Riding Into Jaipur. Lonely Road was recorded onto a 16-track analogue tape, then loaded into Logic Audio for overdubs. At first, Paul played Hofner bass and sang a live vocal, some of which was used, then overdubbed a Martin acoustic, uh, Epiphone, electric guitar, and another vocal. A played drums and overdubbed tambourine, Rusty played Gibson SG electric guitar, then overdubbed a pedal steel guitar and Gibson acoustic guitar, Gabe played the Wurlitzer electric piano, and David overdubbed on the Roland organ. When speaking about the song, Paul said, Lonely Road was written in Goa, where I was enjoying the beach and the sea and generally chilling out in the new century. Again, I had a few moments in the afternoon, which is always a good time for me. A quiet spell when it's always cool for me to go off and fondle my guitar. The song basically wrote itself in about an hour. It is what it is with this song. You can make of it what you want to make of it. To me, it's not particularly about anything other than not wanting to be brought down. It's a sort of anti-being brought down song, which is for anyone and everyone. It's, I don't want to be brought down again. I don't want to walk that lonely road. So it's symbolic for anyone who's been through any sort of problems. It's a defiant song against loneliness, written in a hotel room in Goa. Yeah, okay, okay, folks, like, okay, that was quite interesting, folks. Particularly because almost everyone who listens to Driving Rain is going to immediately assume that it's directly about Linda. And part of me wonders whether this is just projection on our part, and we should just believe Paul and take him at his word. Part of me wonders whether it's like a subconscious thing and maybe consciously he was just writing about quite broad, symbolic topics and that, you know, it just came out that way. Or, and this to me, in my own cynical way, seems the most likely explanation, is that by the time this interview is taking place, he's with Heather and he didn't want to, like, make more than half the album sound like it's about Linda whilst he's in this new relationship. And I get that. But it's so clear that Lonely Road is about Linda. It just fucking is, folks. I actually don't believe him here at all. Also, in the book Conversations with McCartney by Paul Denoyer, Paul did touch on this song, saying, Lonely Road was written in India. And that's a bit... I don't really know what I'm doing. Just blues longing. I say I tried to go somewhere old. That's India to search for my pot of gold. Well, I wasn't. I was on holiday, so it's half imagination, half reality. I'm looking for a rhyme for old, and pot of gold comes to mind. Then, I don't resist. I tried to go somewhere old, because 
I no longer need a pot of gold. Nah, fuck that. Let's go somewhere old to search for a pot of gold. That seems more like a song. On to the next track now, and we have About You, which was recorded onto 16-track analog tape and then loaded into Logic for overdubs. Paul played a pig-nosed electric guitar and sang the vocal and then overdubbed a few more. Abe played Paul's Ludwig drum kit and overdubbed a tambourine. Rusty played Vox bass guitar and then overdubbed a Gibson 12-string electric guitar. Gade played the Wurlitzer and then overdubbed some Hammond organ. When speaking about the song, Paul said, About You was written in India, in Goa. We had such a relaxing start to an Indian holiday, which was at the beginning of 2001. It was so exciting. I hadn't been back to India since the Maharishi days, which was 25 years ago or so. It was great to look around a bit more. I'd only seen Rishikesh north of Delhi before. We started off in Goa, relaxed beach time, and one afternoon I wrote About You on a little travel guitar that I had, which has its own amp in it. I picked some words out for the song after seeing a copy of the India Times that was lying around. Awesome, that sounds really cool, and that really reminds me of John Lennon, seeing newspaper headlines or magazine articles, and then being inspired to write songs like Happiness is a Warm Gun, or, you know, Good Morning, Good Morning, that was like a commercial, or something like that, uh, or even like A Day in the Life. Of course, it's even more interesting considering the fact that this is one of those kind of get-back albums where Paul was doing stuff more like the Beatle way. And so for him to have a song that was kind of written in a Beatle-esque way makes total sense. And, you know, there's no wonder why it was chosen for the final track listing as well. And finally for this day, there is Riding Into Jaipur, which was recorded onto an eight-track analogue tape and then loaded into Logic Audio for overdubs. Paul played a Martin Backpacker acoustic guitar before overdubbing his Hofner bass and a vocal. Abe played a Roland Hand Sonic with African drum samples. Rusty played the Tampura and then overdubbed a Gibson 12-string guitar. Gabe played the piano and David overdubbed a synth. Now, I did just want to point out here that, yes, for any of you out there who thought that this was the sitar being played in this song, do not worry, that's exactly what I thought when I first heard this one, but no, it is in fact the Tampura, which is another instrument from the same area. The main difference between a tampura and a sitar is that the sitar has that large resonance gourd halfway up, like a big extra resonance chamber on the neck, and it is fretted, whereas the tampura is not. When asked about this song, Paul said, Making up a song is always a great pleasure. It doesn't always seem like hard work to me. Writing to Jaipur, funnily enough, the melody was written outside of India. I had a backpacking guitar, a little Martin travel guitar that is absolutely slimmed down to nothing and weighs sort of zero ounces. I had one of those that Linda gave me as a prezi, and I took it out when she and I went to the Maldives for a holiday. My God, is that ever the unique take? Also, I get it, and I do agree with him to a certain degree that the looseness and the spontaneity of this album is one of its greatest strengths. I just didn't expect to see it be... Put so bluntly is all. Awesome stuff. Following on, and we have another proper contemporaneous review, this time from Ian MacDonald in Uncut Magazine from 2002. He says, McCartney's rock and roll album Run Devil Run reintroduced him to immediacy and rawness, not to mention the discipline of being a bass player rather than a multi-instrumentalist. This has been rubbed off on his first album of originals since then. Made earlier this year in LA with an American pickup band he'd never played with before, Driving Rain places a preview on spontaneity and is mostly performed live with minimal overdubbing. 
In parts, for example, the lengthy closer rinsed the raindrops, the results are almost ferocious, coming as close to a McCartney-esque tin machine as one could reasonably imagine. As for the songs, there is an overemphasis on rather straight mid-tempo chords, changing one per bar with harmonic staidness that suggests something less like contented relaxation than involuntary tiredness. Apart from the fact that it's a solo effort, McCartney's first album has more in common with Driving Rain than anything he's recorded since. The directness and walloping drums are very similar in both cases, and it's piquant to hear a man who'll be 60 next June yelling 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, let's go for a drive, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, let's go there and back again, in very much the carefree style of his youth. Ironically, the most successful tracks are the most polished and produced of the 15, the ballad Your Loving Flame and the semi-instrumental Heather. Possibly a grower, this album is certainly better than anything Mac has done for a while, if not the late masterpiece some of us have been hoping for. Now folks, I do just want to point out that I found this quote after I'd recorded parts three and four of this Driving Rain series. That's all I'm going to say. You'll have to wait until listen to those instalments to see certain parallels between myself and McDonald. But yeah, I'm certainly happy to see such another positive review in the main media, especially the fact that McDonald clearly decided to meet the album halfway and go in without expectations. Also, shout out to his love of the goofiness of the title track, another point I cannot help but agree with. This is also the second review to mention how relatively primitive and stripped back Driving Rain is as an album, and already I'm suspicious that this may have been another of the issues that irked other people so much. Like when Paul went retro with The Beatles on his last album, everyone loved it, but for him to go retro for his own solo career doesn't seem to get people quite as hot and heavy. Moving on now, onto Greg Cott's write-up for Rolling Stone magazine in late October 2001, and what I like so much about this one is that he admits that McCartney's work hasn't always been his best, but still acknowledges that he is the GOAT. He says, Not that this should come as a shock, though after all these years, it often goes unnoticed or taken for granted, but Paul McCartney is one kick-ass bass player. A listener could live inside the voluptuous notes he so effortlessly threads through Driving Rain, his first album of new rock songs in four years. His genius on the instrument often has been enough to atone for many of his lesser post-Beatles compositions. No matter what anyone thinks of silly love songs, the bass line itself practically justifies that ditty's existence. Driving Rain exploits this virtue to the fullest with fuss-free arrangements that magnify the interplay of a decent little four-piece rock and roll band comprising of three relative unknowns and one living legend. McCartney is one legend with a penchant for breeziness, and many of his lesser solo disc traffic in mere pleasantness. This album isn't one of those. Though it does have a few tracks that sound tossed off rather than finely tuned, a tiny bubble floats but never arrives at its destination, spinning on an axis drifts lazily, and Heather suggests a warm-up exercise for the band rather than an actual song. Fortunately, McCartney has embraced the small combo spirit that made Run Devil Run, his 1999 album of rock and roll covers, such a triumph. Back then, McCartney was deep in mourning for his wife Linda, and he returned to the music of his youth with almost desperate purpose. The best of his new tunes revisit that same emotional terrain, giving Lonely Road a bite that becomes a frenzied growl by the song's end. Magic looks back in poignant reverie, while From a Lover to a Friend looks ahead with hymn-like wonder, tempered by anxiety. 
on each of these tunes, plus the snappy, if slight, driving rain, the country-flavoured Your Way, and the 10 minutes rave up, rinse the raindrops, McCartney's bass does the steering. Four-string melodies rise up as a counterpoint to his still-pliant vocals, and the never-ending McCartney groove, well, it isn't silly at all. Wow, so... Rolling Stone, the magazine that largely meant Paul didn't get his place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame until after Linda had died, has given him a largely positive review on his first major solo release since her death. What a coincidence, am I right? Of course, I'm not saying that this is an inaccurate review, it largely mirrors my own opinions, but it does seem rather probable that this review was written in a more positive light than it may very well have been, due to certain political dealings at the time. I mean, Paul just referred to uh, Jan Wenner as an old friend in a recent tweet, so maybe that whole thing is put to bed now. But, you know, it still would have certainly been present in people's minds around this time. But, on to the actual review itself, though. Uh, Yeah, again, I'm just really happy that it seems like all of these major publications are grooving with the album. McCartney's bass is absolutely incredible on this album. I don't think I really give enough credit to it in the next two episodes, but I'm glad that Greg here has managed to point it out because, oh, yeah, he puts it so it does indeed do the steering. Also, I did appreciate how even Rolling Stone is not above ending the review on a semi-pun slash reference to the lyrics of Silly Love Songs, which is arguably the tropiest way to end any McCartney writing. Then we come on to the BBC review by Chris Jones in 2002. He says, Firstly, it's hard, of course, to approach any new product from the esteemable Macca without making reference to his new main squeeze. One track is called Heather, for goodness sake, and she gets a name check on the sleeve notes, and herein lies the problem. An awful lot of this, Sir P's 28th album or so, is devoted to a transition between old and new loves. And when folk fret about the proper amount of time spent since Linda's demise and his renewed passion, it may have more to do with how it actually affects his output rather than whether it offends our sense of propriety. Nobody would deny the great man a little company, but there's nothing fires a great songwriter more than a touch of misery. The fact that he sounds so jolly well contended means that perhaps a little more lonely yearning would have made the material a little more challenging and rewarding. Let's face it, we haven't really had the chance to listen to a Paul McCartney who is lonely since about 1965. Considered by aficionados as the third of a trilogy to mark the end of his life with the world's most famous vegetarian, this album is by no means pointless, overly sentimental or even dated. By using a bunch of fresh young American musicians and allowing some of the material to stretch onto more experimental jamming territory, spinning on an axis and the 10 plus minute rinse the raindrops, Mr. Wacky Thumbs Aloft has injected a raw urgency into his sound, which really does hark back to the band on the run days. However, in attempting to keep his sound as contemporary as possible, he also falls into the strange trap of often having rather similar sounds to the legions of those heavily influenced by him. Whisper it, but parts of this album sound like Crowded House. No one can deny the true worth of the man who, even when as rich as Croesus and in no need of validation, still feels the need to create and comment on the world around him. The album finishes with Freedom, his response to September 11th. Yet, McCartney's cardinal fault was always a tendency to slip into cosiness, and songs such as Magic and I Do serve as little more than snapshots into his own happy little world, rather than resonate with the universality of his greatest moments. 
Though, let's hope he doesn't stop trying. Uh, that review was alright. It was definitely a lot more in the middle on the fence than the last few. Uh, definitely probably focusing too much on the fact that it's about Heather and Linda, though I've pretty much done the same this episode, so I really can't judge him there. But it does seem that a lot of these critics are largely agreeing that the better material on this album uh, is Rinse the Raindrops. <laughs> like, that's the only one that's been positively mentioned so far. Magic has been mentioned positively. In this one, it's mentioned negatively. And, yeah, Chris, I know this was 20 years ago, but Magic is not a song about his own coziness. It's like a tragic ballad to the loss of his wife. I don't think he uh, understood the material quite as well there um i've never listened to crowded house either so if anyone could get back to me on whether this does sound like crowded house uh, that'd be nice but yeah um i actually kind of agree with them actually you know if this was either all about linda's death or all about the new love heather it probably would feel a little more cohesive Next up, we have a CD review from the G.W. Hatchet, which is described as an independent student newspaper serving the George Washington University community since 1904, which all sounds very serious and probably very funny at, at the end of the day. Uh, let's see what they had to say. Uh, oh, this was written by Alex Kingsbury as well. It is impossible to listen to a Paul McCartney album and not compare it to his earlier work with the Beatles. With a catalogue including Yesterday, Get Back and Blackbird, it is difficult not to. It is the fact that dogged both McCartney and John Lennon throughout their solo careers, and fair or not, it is still the first reaction I had when hearing McCartney's new offering, Driving Rain. Driving Rain is a worthwhile addition to any fan's collection, and with the addition of David Kahn, the album brings the recently domestic Macca sound a fresh edge. The album was recorded in a five-week session with studio musicians who didn't see the music before McCartney arrived in the studio to begin recording. This was done purposefully. Macca says, to regain the spontaneity and freshness he'd heard on many Beatles tracks recorded in the same way. This live jam session feeling is evident throughout, and for example, the 10 plus minute jam at the end, rinse the raindrops. The album is more ambitious and experimental musically than his last effort flaming pie, which was clearly well produced and tightly mixed. Driving Rain is a fresh and at times youthful sounding album. Driving Rain is a mixed bag though. McCartney has songs for his late wife Linda, as well as tributes for his fiancée Heather Mills. Love and optimism dominate this album, and it's evident that McCartney still has the contentment and happiness that has dominated his solo work. On the whole, though, the album is strong. McCartney offers strong and at times vulnerable vocals that underscore the thoughts of lost mourning and a new love that has dominated in the past few years. Though the album features gems like Lonely Road and Magic, there are too many songs included. McCartney has said in interviews that he's become slightly lazy in his lyric writing in the post-Beatle years due to the lack of competitive songwriting duo and later trio of Lennon, McCartney and Harrison in the group. I find myself finishing verses on the first listen to give them a predictable rhyme. Loving Flame and Riding into Jaipur are prime examples. His latest album will not please all of his fans, possibly his harshest critics, but Driving Rain is honest and a reflection of an ageing rocker who still has music to make. Now, folks, I know that me reviewing the spelling and grammar and punctuation and sentence structure is not what these reviews are about, but my God, was that terribly written. And yeah, I know it's a student newspaper, but there was no student editor on this. I had to, you know those like square brackets where you have to change a quote and you're letting the reader know that you've changed the quote? 
Well, when I put these notes up on the Patreon one day, you are going to see that I've put square brackets around a whole lot of that just to make it make sense. But yeah, it's kind of all over the place, a bit like how he's claiming the album is. You know, in one sentence, he says it's a mixed bag. Then he says the album's strong. Then he says, you know, his fans might not like it. And the, the lyrics are lazy, but that... It, 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 it's very strange, you know. He he talks about how it's split between Linda and Heather again, but how he's still got all this love in his life. I find this review more confusing than anything. Uh, yeah, really didn't like it. Also, you know, folks, you got you have to mix up your words. I know I'm guilty of it, especially on live episodes where I tend to just go back to the same stock ten words, but. Don't use, like, dominated twice in two sentences. You know, just basic English literature. All right, all right. Let's jump forward a bit and look at a more contemporaneous review for this album. And one that did leap out to me was in Far Out magazine, a website that friend of the show, Owen Ling, has contributed to in the past. This is written by Tyler Golson from the 12th of November, 2021. He says... Assembling a group of musicians that would go on to back him live for the next two decades, McCartney looked to bring back an edge to his recorded output. And so he went about assembling a couple of milling rockers, quite a few snoozy piano ballads, and a whole lot of filler that quickly makes you forget that this is actually one of the most uniquely talented songwriters of all time. The way Driving Rain doesn't just question McCartney's legendary penchant for playfulness and genre hopping, but actively works against it is utterly astounding. The album's title track is a weak, grown-up version of Altogether Now, complete with a counting motif that has insanely diminished returns. Heather seems like it's going to be a pointless instrumental before McCartney comes in at the literal last minute to make it just another passable love song. A sombre cloud hangs over tracks like From a Lover to a Friend and Back in the Sunshine Again that might too easily be connected with this being the first studio release since Linda's death in 1998. But... McCartney saves plenty of time to pay tribute to his new wife, Heather Mills, so that the gloom now just seems like foreshadowing for how that relationship would end. It's certainly not all bad road, though. I Do features McCartney dallying with diminished harmonics, which is an easy shortcut to sounding Beatle-esque, but he mostly fares well on the earnest track. Freedom has a hook that the other songs on the album would die for, and is actually less cringe-inducing than its jingoistic reputation might suggest. About You is a lean, tight rocker that probably should have been replicated more on the album. Some of the new approaches actually pay off, like on the driving would-be closer Rinse the Raindrops. The problem with Rinse the Raindrops, though, just like the rest of the album, is that the new territory explored ultimately is a detriment to the album as a whole. In Raindrops' case, the ten-minute track at the tail end of the album makes an already protracted slog feel like a never-ending trek through hell. Whenever McCartney doesn't take the safe route, it directly contradicts something else on the album, to the extent that the final product just feels like a confused, overlong mess. Or at least, that's what it would feel like if any of the songs had any staying power. Driving Rain isn't a colossal failure, but it does commit the most egregious sin in a Paul McCartney album. It's boring. Ooh, folks, I have quite a lot to say about this review, and sorry, Owen, if this is one of your colleagues, but I'm about to tear him a new asshole. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the guy just clearly doesn't like the album, and that's going to make it hard for me to meet him halfway. First of all, though, the the admonishment of the song Driving Rain by calling it uh, a weaker version of Altogether Now is just absolutely stupid. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, 
First of all, the idea of using All Together Now as a negative is complete bullshit, as it is an amazing fucking song. But what he's really saying is, one of these songs has McCartney counting, and the other one has him counting, so they're similar. Like, is this what passes off as journalism these days? You know, the title track is many things, but it's certainly not a repetitive children's song. Uh, It's a dynamic, if bittersweet, love song that celebrates the beauty and the mundanity of relationships. They're not alike. The commentary's bullshit. I mean, out of the three nice things he says about the album, I actually disagree with two of them. About You is not one of the best songs on the album, and it should not have been replicated more. And whilst Freedom does have an incredible hook on this album, the other tracks on this do not wish that they could have it. You know, it... Such flippant, silly writing. It really is. Uh, he, he's, he's really not meeting this halfway at all. Uh, the album's not boring. I mean, if it's flitting from genres constantly and changing up all the time, how is it boring? I mean, the only thing I could honestly agree with him on is the idea that maybe having rinsed the raindrops at the end of an already long album does make it feel like a bit of a slog. But hey, you know... The, there are worse criticisms to have. There really are. Um, Yeah, just all around negativity. Don't really agree with it whatsoever. But everyone is entitled to their own stupid opinions, aren't they? Right, now that we've gone through some of the thoughts of the supposedly paid professionals, it's now time for us to take a quick gander at seeing what the commoners think about Sir Paul's work on Driving Rain. I'm not going to really give my thoughts and feedback on this. You know, these are just people's comments, but I'm just going to go through a few of them before we round out this episode, folks. User WRT on RateYourMusic.com wrote in 2005, I've never heard a McCartney solo album that was so aggressively pedestrian prior to this one. The only standout songs are the final one, Rinse the Raindrops. That's it. What, you thought I meant Freedom? I can't believe all Music Guide chose Freedom as one of the top picks. What the fuck? And of course, the first six. Of course... They're forgettable enough, and I'm not sure what I'm even talking about now. It doesn't help that the album really sags after the sixth or seventh track and stays that way until the penultimate track. Driving Rain really is the perfect proof that McCartney can sound exactly like his boring contemporaries. This merits something more than two stars for three main reasons. One, you can still catch occasional glimpses of McCartney's songwriting genius, a catchy melody here, a nice bass hook there, and so forth. It's nice to know that he hasn't completely run out of it yet. Two... Rinse the Raindrops is top-notch, a Beatles standards jam. Finally, Paul does a truly harrowing scream at the end of Raindrops that totally beats out any of Lennon's trumped-up primal scream BS. User JCJH20 on RateYourMusic.com wrote in 2010, This album is such a hidden gem in McCartney's large discography, being one of the most underrated, easily beating out his late 80s and early 90s offerings like Flowers in the Dirt and Off the Ground. Sometimes I prefer it to Chaos and Creation as well. The songs on here sound incredibly personal and heartbreakingly sad. I would be willing to bet that some of it being about the recent passing of Linda. Lonely Road is the darkest and most raw, emotional and painful thing he's done in years, with lyrics like, I hear your music and it's driving me wild, giving you a sense of Paul's demons and uncontrollable sadness to coping with Linda's death. It opens up a deep bass line that sounds more like Black Sabbath than McCartney. The next two were also quite dark and sad, with deep, personal, direct, emotional lyrics that we're not used to hearing from the man. Really, the only lightweight, catchy, fun thing that we're normally used to on this album is the title track, Driving Rain. 
The album is a bit of a downer emotionally, and it's not instantly catchy and memorable like 98% of McCartney's output, so it does take a bit of time to grow on you. But once it does, it's very rewarding. There are great melodies, and much of it has a very cool, laid-back, modern feel to it that is a welcome change from some of the tired, formulaic nature of a bunch of songs in the past albums from the 80s and 90s. An incredible return to form, and unfortunately, the death of Linda played a huge inspiration for these songs, filled with pure, raw emotion, sadness, longing, looking at the past with great memories, and some songs even look forward to the future with great positivity. An incredible turning for McCartney, and I will not be afraid to say that this is the best album from start to finish from him in almost 20 years. User Michael Cook on allmusic.com wrote in 2016, about 15 years out from the release of Driving Rain, this album comes across as McCartney's last attempt at making a young man's album. McCartney releases this after focusing more on mature issues and a lack of urgency needing to be heard. This is McCartney finally coming out to terms with the legacy and importance to music regardless of what new music he does or doesn't release. There are quite a few big misses here. I Do is dead on arrival, and the rapping on Spinning on an Axis shows that McCartney hadn't quite worked out how to communicate with the hip-hop generation. Kindly gets a nod work helping McCartney navigate this better later on. And yes, the counting lyrics for Driving Rain are almost like a kid's song. I'm not even going to mention the wrong-headed freedom, which clearly should not have been on this album. But Driving Rain is McCartney as a whole person. We see the pain, we see him working through his emotions, we see joy, we see aggression and anger, and it would be hard to pinpoint an album where McCartney has this many emotions in play in his songs. McCartney is always coy about his lyrical meaning, but the lyrical content of songs like From a Lover to a Friend are directly McCartney asking for permission to move on from the death of his wife. How can I walk when I don't know the way? Is McCartney plainly saying he has no idea how to navigate this new life, but he's working through it. Certainly, McCartney's work after this album has become more introspective, but the fire and emotional driving force behind this album has not been matched and likely never will be again. User RemTIW on RadioMusic.com wrote in 2018, In some ways, Driving Rain is the reflective confessional singer-songwriter album that one would have hoped Run Devil Run turned out to be. Only the crucial difference is that this is not Paul writing from the perspective of the grieving widow. This is Paul writing from the perspective of the widow who went through his grieving and is now prepping to move on with someone new. Maybe it couldn't have come out any other way. If he tried recording any earlier, he may not have had enough sense of himself to function properly on a record. However, what's sacrificed in the waiting process is now that he's got more time to mull it over. He's more likely to sand away some of the rougher edges by surrounding the effective emotional moments with professional filler, such as the meaningless track, uh, the Eastern influence riding into Jaipur. Whoever thought that McCartney would try and write a George Harrison song and fail so spectacularly is beyond me. Or the regrettable jingoism of the post-9-11 last-minute edition closer, Freedom. The combo of those missteps mixed with the fact that someone knew that McCartney was writing about was Heather Mills meant that post-divorce, this album pretty much got written out of the history books of the man's late career efforts. That's honestly a bit of a shame, since its better opening moments, like From a Lover to a Friend, Your Loving Flame, and The Opening Lonely Road, are actually pretty solid Macca efforts. But it certainly hasn't aged well, and can fairly be considered to be one of his lesser projects. And finally, Jerry Coogan, probably no relation to Steve, wrote in 2021 on allmusic.com, 
In any other time, many of us would record our precious vinyl albums on the cassette tapes for listening to in the car or on personal Walkman players, etc. Given that you could usually fit two LPs onto a single cassette tape, the sensible thing was to have a couple of compatible albums back-to-back, e.g. the Beatles' Rubber Soul and Revolver, Bowie's Heroes and Low, Steely Dan's The Raw Scam and Aja. Driving Rain would have been the ideal companion for Flaming Pie. It is a much, much better album than is suggested by its seemingly low and relative sales figures and chart performance. I could do without the hidden track Freedom, which is a nice enough spontaneous gesture after the 9-11 shock, but it hasn't worn well and is jarringly out of place on this album. Similarly, the last seven minutes or so of Rinse the Raindrops are not only entirely superfluous, but are the only part of the album which is mere filler. Indeed, if that track faded out after just a couple of minutes, the entire album would be better off for it. These are minor cavils in the context of an hour's worth of accomplished and varied listening. It's an album that I can happily listen to from its beginning right through to the first few minutes of Rinse the Raindrops without ever feeling an urge to skip a track. By turns, it's powerful, poignant, tender, heavy, beautiful, raw, but above all, always musical and melodic with Macca's voice still in great shape. At the time of its release, I remember thinking I'd be totally satisfied to queue up and pay for a McCartney live performance if all the material is primarily drawn from this album and its two immediate predecessors, i.e. Run Devil Run and Flaming Pie, with a light sprinkling of other post-Wings hits. It's not that I don't like Wings and the Beatles material, but I've already seen him perform that material brilliantly on numerous occasions, and I believe that his contemporary material was strong enough to make a great show. Of course, I recognise that I'm in the small minority with that opinion, but I still wish he'd done it, even if for one short, small-scale tour. He was in magnificent creative form at the turn of the century. There we go, folks! That is the end of part two of Driving Rain. I am not going to give you a lengthy closer here. This episode has already been far too delayed and is already too long anyway, I assume. I'm going to start the editing now. But yeah, thank you all folks for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. Please get all of your Paul all of the time. Please email me in your thoughts about Driving Rain. I'd love to get a conversation going as per the usual. Apologies for the tardiness of this episode. I've just been having a bit of downtime both in terms of how I feel and what I've been doing. But Paul Nothing is back, as you have just heard. Thank you all for listening. There will be two new episodes out over the next two days to complement this one, which should go some way to make you all forgive me. <laughs> I do apologise. This has been another episode of Paul Nothing. I've been here, Sam Wells. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry, Krishna. No more autographs. Play us out, Danny.
Bye. 